0: another episode of the darko audio podcast welcome back everybody and welcome back srajan ebayin from six moons
1: hello john
0: now today srajan we're going to be talking about i think buying a first or a an early hi-fi system if you're you know new to this hobby and also how to set it up how to get the most of it in your room so we're talking speakers amps DACs. we're not talking turntables today far too complicated for this kind of newcomer territory
1: now on that subject, didn't you just buy a compact all-in-one or you know all in a thousand euro system
0: a thousand euro system yes i purchased a a i guess what you'd call an entry-level hi-fi system i set myself a budget of a thousand euros i just squeaked underneath maybe i was cheating a bit on the stands but um yeah, I spent a thousand bucks on three new components. I didn't consult with the manufacturer. I just bought their stuff. What did you get? So, I mean, generally speaking, we're told that we have to start with the speakers, right? So I started with the speakers. But also, because I've been doing this a while, I knew roughly what amplifier I needed. So I had to set myself a very tight budget for the speakers because. I knew that I would have to reserve more money for the amp. We'll come to that in a moment. So the speakers, I bought a pair of Dali Spector 2. So they're a little chunky, small two-way stand mount loudspeaker. Uh, Why did I buy these? I, I bought them, well, see, one of the criteria for buying them was actually to talk about brands that I hadn't really covered too much on my YouTube channel. I have done one Dali video before, but that was a pair of actives. This is a pair of passives and i i guess i'm fascinated by them because they make their own drivers in house in uh it's not in Aarhus but their facility is just outside Aarhus and mm-hmm. they make them from they're very big proponents of paper/wood slash pulp for making their own drivers so i thought that was interesting and i i didn't i guess the actives i reviewed a few years ago i liked them i didn't like the aesthetic very much they were sort of very chunky black 90s-esque speakers i think um but the little stand mounts, I think, I mean, I'm looking at them off to my side right now. I think they look great, and they've got a nice little brown driver. So it's a five-and-a-quarter-inch driver for people that want to know that kind of thing. There's a one-inch soft dome tweeter with a waveguide with a pattern around it, and I'm pretty sure that's to do with dispersion, but I don't know exactly what. They're rear-ported. They're 84 and a half dB. And what? how much of your
1: 1,000-euro budget did you spend on the speakers now?
0: Uh, it was about 230 euros. Oh, very good.
1: So you had some left for the rest.
0: Yeah, because I knew that I was going to have to spend more on the amplifier than the the loudspeakers, which is, it kind of goes against the conventional wisdom that I was brought up with, right? And Mm -hmm. maybe you too, that if you have a budget, you should spend at least 50% or the largest portion on the speakers. But I think when you're shopping at this level, that no longer holds. Because I think manufacturers have got so good – at making affordable loudspeakers really, really cheap, like excellent. You can, you can get a 200 euro pair of speakers from say Mission or Wharfdale. I mean, I went sort of just cruising through Amazon, looking at what was available for 200 bucks. Um, and the Dali popped up and I thought that's the one I want because I've done the mission before and I've done the Wharfdale before. So Mm -hmm. I thought this is the third that I haven't done. Um, and I knew that I guess in terms of amplification. I was going to have to spend more than I don't know 200 bucks. You can get $200 class D amplifiers on Amazon by brands that I've never really heard of. The most well-known brand is that I have heard of at that kind of level is Topping. Right. But I I don't. See this I got to be so careful in saying this, right? I don't want to be a class D snob, but the I guess sub 500 euro class D amps that I have heard mainly from Chinese brands they don't sound horrible, but they just sound a bit thin. They lack substance. To, you know, mm-hmm. they, they, kind of, they sound skeletal. So going into my amplifier choice, I knew that I wanted Class AB for that reason, because I thought a Class AB is probably a better choice at this price point. I also knew that I wanted to buy from, I guess, a trusted brand, a brand that's been around for a long time. So not a sort of unknown Chinese brands. Not that there's, not that there's anything wrong with those, but they're an unknown to me. And I actually ended up buying a Rotel because i owned a lot of Rotel gear in the past. I'd loved all of it. I've been to the factory as well. So I've seen them made. So I thought, yeah, this is a good one for me to buy. I mean, obviously, people, you know, not everybody's been to the factory. So that's not going to be a reason for them. But it's class AB, 50 watts per channel. And, and again, probably you know, an integrated, right? Integrated, yes, yes. And is yeah. it like uh,
1: an all-in-one? In other words, has it also included that?
0: It does have a DAC, but the twist is that you can only access that from Bluetooth. Okay. So it's only a Bluetooth accessible DAC, but it has a built-in phono stage. Uh-huh. And yeah, so it, there are a number of features. It's got a, a little sort of screen on the front so you can adjust uh tone controls. And yeah, it's just a it's it's heavy, it's chunky, it feels good, you feel like you're getting value for money, but it's three times as expensive as the loudspeaker. Mm-hmm. Which like I say, it sort of bucks conventional or internet wisdom.
1: But we we do have to qualify and say that you didn't just buy an app. You basically bought a system in a box minus the speakers. You get the DAC in there. You get the preamp. You get the power amp. You get some, you know, Wi-Fi uh, facility. You maybe even have an app interface.
0: No, there's no. It's, it's just um, it's just Bluetooth. But because I don't want to rely on Bluetooth because it's lossy, I did buy an external DAC as well, to feed it losslessly. But before I I talk about that, the amplifier is called the Rotel A11, but it's the tribute edition. So that was the one that was tweaked by Ken Ishiwata, Mm -hmm. who unfortunately died at the end of 2019. I think just before this project was finished actually, because it was, I think it was finalized by Karl Heinz Fink, who is a well-known sort of gun for hire for designing speakers, but also has his own Fink design team company. But they make very high end stuff. But he is, yeah, he obviously knows what he's doing. I mean, he's been making speakers and I guess designing electronics for a long time. So I, I, I guess I was also swayed by that story, you know? It's a marketing story. Ken Ishiwata, like, who would not go for that? I mean, if you've been around a bit and you know a little bit about hi fi, you might be swayed by that. I certainly was. I can't say that I was immune to the, the Ken Ishiwata angle here of being. This amplifier being Im- improved by him. I've not heard the original, so I've got no idea. But I do know it, it features um, some damping on the chassis, uh, I think new capacitors in the power supply, some resistor changes. It's just minor tweaks.
1: We might just tell the listeners that uh, what Ken did is the equivalent to what we would call tweaking or modifying. He took uh, an existing Rotel circuit. Yes. And then because he has very experienced ears and he knows how to get, the sound that he likes from "quote unquote" modest ingredients, he will change some capacitors or he will change some hookup wiring. He will apply tweaks and mods to an existing circuit and improve its subjective performance.
0: Correct, yeah. Because the A11, the original, I think, came out in 2019, and then the A11 tribute, I think, was last year. And there's, there's the, there is a CD player equivalent. called the it's called the CD11 tribute. And interestingly, we are going to be interrupted today by a courier who is bringing me that CD player because I bought that as well, because I'm just curious. And if I guess if listeners are wondering how I can afford to buy this stuff, it's basically because of my patrons. And so eventually all this gear will be given back to them as sort of prize giveaways, you know. So I get to use it for a couple of months. And then once I'm done testing it and then using it as comparative gear in other videos, then it goes back to my Patreon community. So yeah, the CD player is coming any moment now. So, yeah. but uh, that is not part of this system, not at all. The last part of this system actually was an external DAC, and I had very specific requirements for an external DAC. Um, firstly, it had to be around a hundred bucks, and I guess most people would think, well, why you know just get a shit audio DAC, or if you're in the UK, in the UK, get an iFi, but neither of those actually met my requirements because of what I wanted. Was a DAC with a sample rate display on mm-hmm. the front because I'm going to hook it into my TV. So pull TOSLink out of my TV. So use the TV as the streaming source. And I actually just, I guess the nerd in me wanted to know what sample rate was coming out of the TV because the TV does resample streaming content. So that was the one requirement. The second requirement was I wanted obviously a TOSLink input on the DAC. So I, I ended up buying a Topping E30. Which is about 120 euros and i'd had a topping deck before and i quite liked it and it, it too had a sample rate display but it didn't have Toslink input so i i just bought the the cheapest one i could find that had this yeah the sample rate display and it has a volume control it's got a remote so it's quite the package for a hundred and something dollars it sounds better a little bit i guess than the the headphone output on my macbook i know this is always a bit of a contentious subject amongst People who buy their first DAC. Some people are like, oh my God, I can't believe what a difference this first DAC makes. And other people are like, oh, it doesn't really sound different to my inbuilt sound card in my computer. But obviously, that depends upon the computer because they're not all the same. So, so yeah, I built, built, bought both um, a 938 euro hi fi system. That doesn't include cables. I did get some off the real Audio Quest cable. Yeah, I had to terminate it myself. That was 50 bucks. Stands are always a kind of spicy issue. I'm using my solid steel SS6 stands, but they're 400 euros. They're not part of this. But as I say in my video about this very system, you can get stands for 100 bucks. Yeah. Or, and we'll probably come to this actually, I think, is that you can put them on a sideboard or a low board, but how high you put your speakers will really influence their sound. Right. I mean, it's yeah. stands are there for a reason. They're there to put the speaker or the tweeter roughly at ear height. And so I, for me stands are important, but I realized that not everybody has stands and yeah, that's, uh,
1: so now to get back to the beginning, mm. you were referencing sort of this audiophile wisdom of, uh, applying most of one's available funds to the loudspeakers. You did it a little differently at this particular price point, but we might want to explain why the loudspeaker is such an important choice and possibly the most important choice before we get to the other component categories. Sure. So why
0: is that? Why is the speaker the most important choice? Mm-hmm. Because the speaker interfaces with the room. Right. And it's, it has the, the greatest impact on sound. If you change your speaker, versus changing your amp, you'll hear more from a speaker change than you will from an amp change in most cases. I don't wanna generalize too much. Yeah, here we might
1: might explain that up until the loudspeaker, the signal is basically contained in circuit traces and cables, right? Yes. So that means that the designer of these circuits has control over how they operate. Mm -hmm. But the moment the signal comes out of the speaker, it's no longer contained. It's sort of out in the wild. Yes. And the, the designer yeah. of the circuit before, and even the loudspeaker designer, has absolutely no idea what kind of environment that speaker is going to face.
0: Right. Because these little two-way stand mounts would be lost in a large room. They right. are perfect for this room. They sound bloody fantastic. They really do. They're, they're zippy. The, the, yeah, they have kind of a little bit, they're a bit warm, a little bit, but I guess... Warm is not the right word. Maybe rounded, smooth. Um, They're not the most transparent speaker I've ever heard, but at 200 euros, I am not complaining at all. Not at all. And
1: the other thing that we might also explain is that from the amplifier to the speaker, we have basically a quote-unquote format conversion. We are going from an electrical signal into mechanical motion. Mm Mm-hmm. And as our loudspeaker drivers move in and out, or if it's an AMT, an air motion transformer, if, if it squeezes the air, that's what creates the sound pressures that we perceive as sound.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And each time we convert one format into another, there tend to be losses, whether it's from analog to digital, whether it's from DSD to PCM, all of these changes going from, from vinyl, going from, you know, from phone and digitizing it, and then back to analog, all of that has an impact. It can mm-hmm. be very small, it can be big, but there usually tends to be a signature. And so that's a very big signature going from an electrical signal to suddenly a mechanical motion that is supposed to be the equivalent of the signal. And yeah, so, yes, yeah, loudspeakers yeah. are a very, very important aspect. And I think there's, there's a few things that i would think about if i was to make or create my first system Mm. one of them would recognize that the majority of music lives between i would say about 60 hertz and three kilohertz okay there is some bass below 60 hertz but it's not central to the music and above three kilohertz we have basically just higher harmonics and overtones. Mm -hmm. So that means that the mid-range is the most important part of music. Treble matters as well, really low bass matters as well, but the center, the the majority portion is the mid-range. And I think now a good question to ask is, is how does our speaker reproduce the mid-range? What is it using? For example, you're familiar with the vivid audio speakers. Yes, I am. Now the yeah. bigger multiways, they use what I believe is a four-inch aluminum titanium dome for the mid-range.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There's smaller mid-rangers that are just three inch, like an Alpair might be. Then another speaker might use a five and a quarter inch or a six and a half inch midrange, like a scan speak, for example.
2: Mm.
1: By the time we go to zoo, we're looking at a ten point three inch mid-range. Yeah. By the time we get to a tenoid dual concentric of their classic range, we might be looking at a 12 or even 15-inch mid-range. And I think it's very clear that if we look at the transition from three to four to five, six, eight, 10, 12, 15 inches, in terms of surface area, and the amount of moving mass that this driver represents, we will get different qualities for the same range that these drivers are all covering. So if, for example, I am a resolution freak and I like my music quick and zippy and bright and intense, Mm. I'm probably better off with a small driver. The small driver weighs less, it moves faster, it has less breakup. That's what I want. But if Mm -hmm. I'm a tone freak or I'm heavily into dynamics and I'm more triggered by like tonal mass, weightiness, gravitas, voltage swings, I'm probably better off with a bigger driver, mm. an eight inch or a ten inch. And you and I are familiar with zoo speakers and we can relate to the fact that when it comes to dynamics and when it comes to tone, what zoo like to call shove.
0: Push and shove. Or or pop and shove top, yeah, yeah. Top,
1: crap, they have that in spades. And yes, they, they do, do. that they, they they do that nearly better than pretty much any other speaker that we could name unless that other speaker is similar to them. In other words, also is using a really big mid-range or a really big woofer. Like Mm. Eclipse, for example, might be similar to Zoo, but uh, a Wilson Audio would certainly be different. A Wilson Audio that's using the five and a quarter inch mid-range. So I think that if one buys speakers, that could be a good question to ask. Okay, if the mid-range is so important, what kind of driver does the speaker that I'm considering use? How big is the driver? And what material is it made out, to, out mm-hmm. of? Yeah. Because that will have a very, very big impact on the flavor that this presentation will give. If, for example, I'm into high resolution, I might also consider a speaker that is using a very, very low mass membrane, like a planar magnetic, mm. like a magnet planar, for example. Yep. that will be a different sound than cones and domes and boxes
0: right absolutely yeah i mean that magna pan lrs and then the new lrs plus sell for a thousand well dollars and below in the us and having heard the predecessor the mmg i can confidently say that magna pans don't sound like any other speaker that i've heard because the driver arrangement you know it's a it's a film I've got to be careful here. I don't get this wrong, but it's basically a film stretched over a wide area. It, it, I guess, it gives you the detail and the precision and, I guess, sound staging as well, but not so much of the the zoo sort of pop and shove and heavy tone and not a lot of low bass either, really. Right. Well, I guess I'm talking sub bass. Whereas I would say that the zoo is better in that respect and the clips. Yeah.
1: And then another thing I think it's very important when one buys one's first system and looks at the speakers one wants to start with is who is listening and how is the listening done? Who Mm. is, is it just one person or is it two or three or four persons that are doing the listening? And the how is, is the listening always done sitting down in a sweet spot?
2: Mm.
1: Or is listening done off-axis? Or is listening even done moving about, standing, walking about, because somebody's in the room doing something, but they want to enjoy music. Mm. So if it's the traditional one lone wolf in a sweet pot types uh, listening, then a narrow dispersion speaker is all that's needed because the, the best sound is supposed to just be in one very specific spot. But if it's now a couple or a family, that's using the stereo also for, let's say, video, Mm -hmm. and there's three or four people on a couch, and they don't have a surround sound system, so there's no center channel, just two speakers. Mm. Now, suddenly, the speaker that was so good for the lone wolf listener is not really good for four people because the ones that get the best sound are the ones sitting in the middle of the couch, and the ones that are over to the side, the sound is compromised. So now, a really wide dispersion speaker Mm. Or an omnipolar speaker like a Duvel, it's much more advantageous because the sound will be more or less the same regardless of where you sit.
0: Which I would not say about the MagnaPan. Not at all. If you stand up, you you lose the top end. If you walk off to the side, you lose the top end. So it's it's a very sort of focused at the lone wolf in, the, in his chair kind of speaker, which I think is probably why it's got a fairly devout and vocal following. But it's not a family listening speaker at all. Whereas right. I would say the zoo is.
1: Yeah. Then I would say another consideration would be well, where is the speaker going to go? Obviously mm. it's gonna go in a room. Well, how big is the room? And where within this room can the speakers go cosmetically? Mm-hmm. And if for some for example the speaker will end up really close to a sidewall, a good type speaker to use is an open baffle speaker, like an Emerald Physic,
0: or a Spatial, yeah, yeah,
1: or a Spatial, or Deasus, or a Sound Chaos. There's quite a number of brands, but at the lower price points, an Emerald Physic or Spatial would be a good choice, and that's because of their dispersion pattern. It's called the figure eight because when you look at it from above, it 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 cancels out the uh, the output on the sides. Mm-hmm. So you have the, the 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 two circles of the eight one is in the front, one is in the back, but then the slim waist of the eight, that's the sound that cancels on the side. So if you put such a speaker pretty much touching the sidewall, you don't have the same amount of immediate first reflections that you would have from a box speaker.
0: Right, yeah. So
1: differently, the open baffle speaker, where the sound radiates front and back, to our listening ear, removes the sidewall. It's as though it's not there or it's nearly not there. So for narrow rooms, an open baffle speaker can be very advantageous.
0: And, and this, again, the same with MagnaPans because they don't fire a lot of sound sideways. Exactly. So I guess, yeah, I think the question to ask yourself is if you do have a narrow room, what's, you know which speakers don't fire sound sideways to bounce back and then come back at you and you hear the the late reflection, which, and I'm going to get a little bit technical here, creates a comb filter. So you get this kind of weird distortion. I was watching a video about this. I was digging into it for this podcast. And there's a um, there's a YouTube channel called the. God, I got to get this right. I think it's called the Audio University. And the the host was demonstrating, basically, you just. I think he was using a microphone and how just bringing a. You could do it with a book, or you could do it with an LP sleeve. So you just have your speaker, and then you sit in front of your speakers, so very close, maybe thirty centimeters away. Hold the record or the book off to the side of the speaker, and then move it towards the side wall, and then back towards you. And you'll hear this kind of sort of flangey effect, like whoa, whoa, because th- that is the comb filter coming in and out and distorting the signal. First reflections um, cause comb filtering effects, which can influence what we hear in the chair. I mean, that also relates to the the, the front wall as well but that's more to do with the speaker positioning thing. I don't know whether we want to go there yet. So, Jean, do we? Well,
1: uh, now that you mentioned the front wall, there is a type of speaker that in the high-end audio uh, commentary most of the time is not ever talked about, and that Mm. is the on-wall speaker. Now, there also are in-wall speakers, but those require that you own your room so you can actually make a hole in the wall and put a speaker Mm. in. But if you're a renter like you and I are, on wall speakers are very advantageous. Sonos Faber, for example, make one, and uh, you know, what's that? Scan Sonic. They, mm-hmm. they just introduced uh, a few, one at 450 a pair, one at 835 a pair. And those are basically shallow speakers that are supposed to hang on the wall like a picture frame. Mm-hmm. And why is it a good thing? Well, now the entire wall turns into what's called an infinite baffle. Mm -hmm. So the sound can't really wrap around the speaker, bounce off the front wall, and then come back at us delayed in time. All the sound, including the bass, that always wants to radiate omnidirectionally, all of that basically radiates so quickly off the wall that the time delay is, like, minute. Mm. The other obvious advantage is that now you don't take up any floor space with the speaker. It hangs on the wall. This is a solution for rooms or applications where, for whatever reasons, maybe it's not domestically acceptable to have a loudspeaker on the floor, there's just no room, or kids are running around, yeah. and they're just going to bump a loudspeaker. It's a really practical solution to get good sound off the floor, out of the way. Mm-hmm. But it's very rarely ever discussed, so I just wanted to mention it. No, on I think I think it's all loudspeakers.
0: From what I can tell, it's a growth area. I'm seeing more and more companies produce on walls. I think Focal just introduced one. I think there's a Scandinavian, another Scandinavian firm that's just introduced one. I think do Elac do them as well. There's a whole bunch of companies that do them, but they're not really. I don't see them written about very often. I don't see them in videos very often. Maybe because it it's quite it's an undertaking to put a speaker on a wall. Right. I mean, it's not just put it on a stand and walk away. Well, as a
1: reviewer, it would basically mean I'd have to make a couple of holes in the wall. And if I have to move them around to find the best position, I need to make Mm. a few holes. And you put a few screws or bolts in the wall. So that's not really attractive since I'm renting the space. And the other thing is sound staging. Mm. And this is important to a lot of people. A lot of people love sound staging, and I think here it's important to say that a lot of the soundstage cues that we as audiophiles like, they're actually artificially generated by placement. Mm-hmm. So the wider we pull our speakers apart, the wider our soundstage gets. The further away we pull them from the front wall, the deeper the soundstage gets. This is not necessarily on the recording. Now, obviously, if the recording engineer layered three people in a trio, one on top of the other, they are all Mm. sort of in the middle, stretching the speakers apart, still has them all in the middle, all three of them, makes no difference. But if a recording engineer has recorded such that you have an image dead center, then you have one half left, then you have another one three quarters left, you have another one all the way left, and the same to the right, That center, quarter right, half right, three-quarter right, all the way to the right. Now, if you move your speakers apart, you create more distance between each of those markers. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy to prove because you can take the same recording and listen to it on an earphone. And now all the width you're dealing with is how wide your head is.
0: Right, right, I see what you mean, yeah. Let's say
1: that you have a wide head and it's 50 centimeters wide. (laughs) There's an obvious difference to a a room when you have three meters between the speakers. And the same goes for depths. Move the speakers far away from the wall, you create more depths. Now with on-wall speakers, that goes away. That depth perception, we are are left purely with what's recorded and that is now limited by our setup. Mm -hmm. So when people think about the kind of speaker they want to buy, They should also ask themselves whether they are really triggered by enormous sound staging, whether that's important to them, because if it is important to them, then it is mandatory that the speaker not be that close to the front wall.
0: So when we're talking about sound staging, I think we need to be clear here to the up for newcomers we're talking about i guess the phantom center speaker that the left and right speakers generate so the illusion of sound emanating from between the speakers and then how wide that illusory sound stage is and how deep it is how tall it is right i mean that's the way i would describe it
1: it's it's a 3d construct between the loudspeakers and if it's done well you Can stand pretty close to the speakers and the sound will not seem to come out of a box,
0: right? You can point you to it, you stand them.
1: there puzzled yeah. and it says, Okay, I know that the sound is coming out of the box, but I can't hear it because it's mm-hmm. hanging between the speakers, mm-hmm. correct? Right, and this sound staging and the precision whereby the individual images are placed within the sound state left to right, front to back, and sometimes even higher and lower that has a lot to do with setup. So, so if Somebody really wants a big, deep, wide, and very specific soundstage. Having the speakers sort of hugging the wall is not a good recipe. And that now makes small speakers like stand-mounted monitors domestically easier to live with. Mm-hmm. Because even if you have to park and close up against the wall for casual listening, or when you do no listening whatsoever, when you do want to listen to them, it is pretty easy to move. A small pair of five and a quarter inch two ways, possibly even bolted to the stand so they don't fall off, and just move them out—two yep. or three meters. Do your listening, and then put them back up against the wall. That's mm. not as easily done if you get big floor-standing speakers that are heavy and they're hard to move.
0: Absolutely, so- I have a pair of um well, as to still to be announced loudspeakers here that are floor standers, and they are extremely heavy. They're they're really a two-person lift. And I, uh, yeah, I would not want to be pulling them in and out from the wall at all because I'd either scrape the floor or it would just be just awkward. I sort of have to rock them around my room, sort of waddle them across the floor, which is super awkward. Yeah. I wouldn't want to do that, but that's just why I'm a big fan of stand mounts because they're very easy to live with store, move around. I guess they're also very easy to experiment with their position and to, to, to see what that does to the sound because, as we know, if we move the speakers close to the wall, front wall, that is, the sound can change. If we bring them further out into the room, the sound can change. Um, and a lot of newcomers are always told, you know, you've got to spend time finding the best place for your speakers sound-wise that best suits your, I guess, listening preferences. And I think a lot of newcomers either ignore that because it just sounds like a hassle. You know, people just want to put them down and plug them in and push play, right? But I think we should acknowledge that you know, speaker position is critical. I mean, I don't. Do you do you fuss over this for every pair of speakers that comes your way, Sujan, so or do you have like a a zone where you kind of know your room now and you know where to put them?
1: Definitely, I have a zone.
0: Yeah, me too. And that yeah. comes from experience. Yeah, and
1: I think this might be interesting to compare notes. Um, I've always rented, and as a reviewer, I'm now I think on my maybe fifteenth room. Mm -hmm. Now, that sounds like a lot, but in a lot of homes, we have more than one room. So I count each room that I use for reviewing. So if a house has three rooms, if I have two homes with three rooms, I count that as six rooms. And in Mm -hmm. most of those rooms that I've done my reviewing, I've always ended up on the short wall. And that's not because I think that a short wall setup is inherently preferential to a long wall setup.
2: Mm. It's
1: just that that was the layout dictated by windows and doors. And sort of the energy flow in the room and how I would actually use it. Now, if a room is a square and if it approaches <laughs> the cube, which is yeah. sonically not advantageous, not at all. No. There is a very easy, very useful trick which a lot of manufacturers use at audio shows when they yep. have to deal with a hotel room. And that is diagonal. Mm. Diagonal is something that my wife and I do in our video room. It works extremely well, not just from the acoustic perspective, but it looks good. Our landlord heard about it, and he thought we were just nuts. And then when he saw it, he says, Wow, that is really interesting. I said, I did not expect that. I think I might try that. Now, why is it advantageous? Well, if we do it completely symmetrical, and so we put our, our system into one of the corners of our square room, Mm. And then we put our speakers at the, uh, you know, in the in the regular stereo triangle, so that the left and the right speakers are very very close to the wall, mm. towed in to face us. If we look at the speaker, the wall past the speaker runs away from the speaker real fast because in this diagonal setup, the walls are splayed out; they're yes. not parallel to the speaker. Mm-hmm. So in a reason in a rather small room that is on top of that square, I can now set up average box speakers and put them close to the wall and the wall won't have the same negative effect that it would if I set up the speakers not diagonal, but straight out and have them sit parallel to the wall. So that can be a really, really good trick if somebody has a hard-to-deal with room is to think about the diagonal. And here's another thing that a lot of people overlook and it's a really neat trick. We've all been told that symmetry in speaker setup is really important. Mm-hmm. And what that really means is that the left and the right speaker are supposed to sit equidistant from the chair. And we're supposed to be peculiar down to hopefully the millimeter. Mm. Left and right speaker are exactly the same distance from the chair, they're at the same height, and the tone is exactly the same. Okay, here we got symmetry. But that symmetry now does not have to extend to within the room. Mm -hmm. The setup can be asymmetrical within the room, but it's still symmetrical relative to the seat. And for example, if in a regular short wall setup, where the system sits on the short wall, the speakers are against the left and the right wall at some distance, if the distance that the left speaker has from the left wall is different than the distance that the right speaker has from the right wall, we we minimize the sidewall effect because instead of having the same effect doubled up, yep. we have two effects at half the strength. Mm-hmm. Yes. And as far as our ears are concerned, more errors that are much lower in magnitude are easy to overlook than one really big error.
0: Right, because you'll get two different comb filters for, for each speaker. Exactly. Because the, the, the walls are further away f- from one than the other.
1: And we see this actually done in a lot of uh, speakers that have the tweeter not exactly in the middle. The tweeter is closer to one side wall than it is to the other. It's done for exactly the same reason. Mm. That whatever effects the baffle has on the tweeter, if the tweeter sits in the middle, that effect gets multiplied because it's the same to the left and the right. If I move the speaker over to the left, I'm halving the problem. So when people set up their system, it's not mandatory that there's symmetry of the system itself relative to the room. And in fact, very often, it's good to throw off that, that symmetry slightly.
0: So I've never had a symmetrical room. Never. Like I I, can, I was just trying to, while you were talking, I was thinking about, Obviously, I was listening to you, Sujean, but I was thinking about how many rooms I've had. It's only about four or five, and none of them have been symmetrical. I think the first one I w- was on the short wall, so firing long ways down the room. The second one was I tried both directions, and in the end, I went with a diagonal. It was the only time I've done that. The third one, I was firing across the room, so it was like the speakers were on the long wall across the room. And then here, well, my room is only just a bit wider than it is long. So I'm firing from, yeah, from the, let me get this right, from the long wall across the room. Mm -hmm. But could we also talk about how, well, you kind of touched on it, how far the speakers need to be apart from one another and then how far they need to be from our listening position? Because.
1: Well, I don't know whether there is a must. I don't know whether there's a hard and fast rule. But I would say that over the years, from what has ended up working best, is uh, I would say speakers between two to three meters apart from each other, somewhere in there. And usually, uh, a lot of people recommend an equilateral triangle Mm -hmm. um, that would put the listener at the same distance, so two or three meters away. Uh, In my favorite setups, that's not always the case. Sometimes the speakers are actually farther away than I'm sitting. Very often the speakers are rather far away from the front wall. Uh, I admit that a lot of um, you know, more, more home-based um, users couldn't duplicate having speakers three meters away from the front wall. But if I have the speakers that far from the front wall, and then I sit rather close and I have the speakers towed on straight so I can't see any side walls at all, Mm. I feel that the sound detaches the most from the boxes and it also detaches from the room. I hear the room the least when I do that.
0: So how far from the front wall do you have your speakers?
1: Uh, I'm often close to three meters. That wow. means from, the front, just, uh, from the front yeah. battle of the speaker to the wall behind them. Mm. Two meters seems to be minimum, but if I can, I have them three meters out. But now I may sit, I mean, upstairs in my smaller space, I sit maybe, uh, okay, the carpet is two by three meters. I may sit two and a half meters from the speakers. Mm. And then I have a lot of space behind the chair. Right. Now, right now in my downstairs big system, the speakers are three meters from the front wall. Then I sit about three meters or four meters from them. But right behind the chair is a door. Right except the door is open. I never close it. That makes sense. That is something else that is really advantageous, is that when we are talking about the loudspeaker, we see drivers generating air pressure, and half the air pressure goes into the room, and the other half of the pressure goes inside the box. And if the box does not have a port where some air is allowed to come out, we can see just how much pressure generates inside that box. Mm -hmm. The same is true in a room. If you lock the, the door and you lock the the windows and you play your, your system and you play it really loud, pressure starts to build up in the room. And especially if if your speakers are bass extended and you play really bass-heavy music. yeah, And most of the pressure will load up in the corners because that's where three boundaries meet and you mm. have a lot of reflections and you have these pressure zones in the front corners and in the rear corners, and up on the ceiling. And not only do these pressure zones screw up the sound, they also register on your ears. It's like an uncomfortable feeling of that there's more pressure on your ears than there should be. And that pressure doesn't do anything good for the sound. It just makes it feel uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, open the door, and it's like you just put a a needle into a tire and deflated it. Suddenly, that energy that was captured in the room can escape. And that pressure goes down in the room there's more clarity on the ears because you don't feel that pressure and the bass doesn't build up in the room the same mm. the bass cleans up so again i understand that in in some circumstances that may just not be practical but if you can leave a door open while you're listening
0: it can have sonic benefits i want to come back to the the position of the speakers from the front wall mm-hmm. because so I have a, a friend in Berlin called Jesko Lohan, who runs a YouTube channel called Acoustics Insider. and I'm actually seeing him tomorrow night for the first time in ages, but he is an expert on room acoustics. He runs a great YouTube channel about it. Super, super relatable and very newcomer friendly, actually. And I remember once the last time I saw him, he was talking to me about, about you know, in ev- pretty much in every... Speaker manual, you'll see the manufacturer recommending you pull the speaker away from the front wall to give it some breathing room, right? And Jesko was saying that basically that's not always a good idea, not always, because so wherever you put your loudspeaker, it will cause a comb filter, right? Now, where that comb filter starts is determined by how close to the wall you put your speaker. So let's say, you know, we just put our speaker down and it's like X number x number of centimeters from the front wall that x number of centimeters relates to a certain frequency so if it's the, if it's a quarter of a frequency's wavelength that wavelength will then get cancelled in front of the speaker because the sound bounces off the front wall but late and then mixes with the direct sound to cause a cancellation it's mathematically calculable I guess. Well, now it has
1: to be out. It has to be out of phase to cancel.
0: Yes. So it, yes, it comes. Yes, exactly. It comes back out of phase, and it cancels. Now that frequency is that cancellation frequency is determined by the distance between the speaker and the front wall, right?
1: Which is not why we are back to the fact that you have to test this actually by listening, right? Because the effect will be, it will be true for any kind of distance. But where it yes. happens, and what frequency band, and how obnoxious or not you find that, you can only find
0: out by actually trying it. Right, So, but here's the rub. So the closer you put the speaker to the wall, the higher the cancellation frequency is. So if you put it really close to the wall, then the, the cancellation frequency where the cone filter starts will be much higher up the, the audible band. And generally, if you obviously, if you do it, if you've got a higher frequency, it's much easier to treat in the room, much easier to kind of absorb or deal with. And I guess, I guess what Yesco was explaining to me was that there are no hard and fast rules. And just because everyone in audiophile land and speaker manufacturers say, make sure you pull your speaker into the room, that's not always the case, right? There's, there are reasons why you would not want to do that. But obviously, if you put it close to the front wall, you're going to get more pronounced bass, more pronounced low frequencies a lot of the time. Or
1: you- yes. And I, th- I think this this idea of uh, detaching the, the sound from the room so it seems to really hang free, mm. to my mind, that very often is is related to having sufficient distance from the wall. But what you were just talking about makes another argument in favor of on-wall speakers.
0: Yeah, or, or just right. putting speakers close to the wall, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends upon the nature of the speaker. Obviously, as you said, if it's a if it's a big three-way that goes all the way down to twenty-five hertz, well, then you're probably going to put up with the comb filtering effect because you don't want the the room gain that the well the the front walls' bass gain sort of interfering with your your loudspeaker. But if it's a stand mount, you probably got a little bit more flexibility. Well, that's why I think
1: that the stand mounts are a good idea. That's like one argument in their favor. They are easy to move around. Mm -hmm. So it's much easier to experiment with where they sound best. And if where they sound best ends up to be objectionable for cosmetic decor reasons, then one should be able to still put them there for the listening session and then put them back up against the wall.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, The other advantage that stand mounts have they tend not to be too much speaker for the room i think that's something that people have heard a lot that argument of too much speaker for the room and what does that usually mean usually it means that a speaker produces too much bass so that the bass energy is really heavy and the speaker starts to sound boomy and muddy
0: isn't that related to pressure though
1: yes it's related to pressure but in a way, those are, like, those are like nearly interchangeable, right? In the bass, since bass propagates omnidirectional, with the exceptions that we have talked about in the
0: past. But you could have a, a let's imagine like a theoretical stand mount that goes down to, let's say in my case, 35 hertz. Mm-hmm. And you have a floor stander that goes down to 35 hertz. Now, both of those, tri- those speakers are going to trigger the, the 35 hertz that I have in this particular room the mode is going it's they're going to create standing waves but right. i guess the amount but with which they pressurize the room will determine how obnoxious that sounds right i mean i
1: and it that also depends on exactly where you have your chair in relationship to where the nulls and the peaks of the standing waves in your room occur well that's the other For thing is if you yeah. put the chair into a null it might sound boomy in a lot of places in the room but where you are sitting you don't hear it because you have you're sitting in a cancellation zone and so this is another important element
0: very important setup yeah. right
1: it's <laughs> not just where you put the speakers mm. but it's where you put the chair in relationship to the speakers and the chair in relationship to the room
0: mm-hmm. yes so i don't sit i mean i, I know you said you sit well in, in front of an open door mine is sort of half in front of an open door that goes to the kitchen. Now that's a double-edged sword because that kitchen is super reverberant, so I'm going to get a little bit of bounce, bit of reverb bounce back from the room, but from the kitchen into this room. But it, I can hear it sometimes, but it's not distracting for me. But I did start out with a couch further back, but moved it forwards because I did this experiment where I was playing a uh, some bass-heavy music and then I just started walking around the room, and putting my head in corners and then listening for suckouts and crawling around. Just trying to work out where the suck outs are, where, where the, where the modes are, where bass is sort of doubled up to a standing wave. And I think it's, that's an experiment that anybody can do. And I think it's a real eye opener because then you work out where the energy builds up in your room, sound wise, pressure wise. Mm-hmm. And that can tell you a lot about where you should put your listening chair. Cause it's not always up against the rear wall. I know no. that's a, aesthetically, a, I guess, a conventional thing to do. Um, but. I, I did it once actually in the very first apartment that I lived in when I, when I started reviewing hi-fi and I had this sort of rock wall behind my head. Now I'd never noticed that before until a, f- uh, a friend came over an audio friend and he's like, you've got to move your couch because I can hear this jiprock vibrating behind my head. And I just thought that and th- I did. I just I flipped the whole system by 90 degrees that weekend. So then I had nothing behind me and I had like a, Sort of glass open doors behind the speakers, which weren't. It wasn't ideal, but it wasn't as bad as having this vibrating jibber rock behind my head. So yeah, listening position is just as important as loudspeaker position, I think.
1: And I think here it's also fair to reiterate that that sound staging, the way that a lot of audiophiles love, is intricately connected to setup. So a lot of it is artificially generated. Mm -hmm. And so if we park the speakers really, really close to the wall, some of that artifice collapses because now we don't have the same depths that we had when the speakers were far enough from the wall. Mm. But is that depth actually recorded or did we manufacture it by moving our speakers out so far? And it doesn't matter which one it is, it's just important to know that if this really big, deep sound stage is important to us, invariably i find that if speakers are really close to the wall that's one aspect that they can't compete with they need to be away from the wall but if i'm not a depth sound if Mm -hmm. if the music that i listen to or my idea of what it should sound like is more this wall of sound then that's not important then the speakers can go really close to the wall for that aspect because i'm not keen on maximizing that depth
0: right you know i I once owned a pair of lin can loudspeakers which look a little bit like an LS35A. They're from the 80s or 70s, and they sit on an open frame stand, and built into their design is they have to be butt up against the wall. And I owned them for about six months, and I love the speed and the zippiness, but it just sounded so flat. There was no real sort of soundstage depth. And also, and this is a thing we haven't touched on yet, which is is something very dear to my heart, is the aesthetics. I don't like seeing speakers close to the wall. It just troubles me visually. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I've been conditioned so much that speakers should be out into the room a little bit, and that's where I find them visually pleasing. I don't know. But the aesthetics of the, <laughs> the speaker position is also a, a huge factor for me. I, I don't know. Like, if Also, when speakers are too far out into the room. I mean, if I was at your house, Rajan, I might get a bit twitchy. Because I'm like, oh, the speakers are three meters away from the front wall. <laughs> That's a long way, you know, they need to go back a little bit. But I guess you're t- when you're putting loudspeakers into a, a living space and most people's listening spaces are living spaces shared with others, the aesthetics, like where the speakers sit is important. And I, th- I guess my sort of anecdotal feedback from people who live with partners, I don't, is that I think partners tend to prefer, who are not into hi-fi, I'm not saying that, you know, but they tend to prefer the speakers to be much further back, so close to the wall, so not into, into the room. I mean, maybe people are listening, probably going, yeah, yeah, my wife or my boyfriend or whatever, you know, nodding along, saying, yeah, they, they hate hate it when I pull them out and I have to push them back and wish they could be invisible and things like that. But, And I think
1: on that count, then we should throw in that if the speakers have to go close to the wall, mm. Usually, if they are ported, it's preferable to have the ports fire out the front, or at least fire out towards the floor, not backwards into the wall. That tends to be preferable.
0: Why is that? Is that because it's just just low frequency energy going backwards?
1: There's probably some really smart technical explanations, but for me, it is purely experience. Me too. But uh, yeah, I just that okay. This is what happens uh, when I do that, and. If I just turn the speaker around or I get an equivalent speaker that has the port firing in the front, I don't have the same problem in the same space.
0: Right. Because I guess I've always understood it, that the port helps the the loudspeaker go deeper. And so it is used to kind of expel air to create a deeper bass. And so I guess if the port is firing bass backwards at the front wall you're going to get a sort of a more problematic scenario if the speaker is closer to that front wall. That's what it seems to be like, like yeah. I, th- I think it's something to do with that. I guess if you know for sure, please write in and let us know because then you can educate two people exactly as to why this is. But I'm with you. Experience-wise, yeah, f- I actually like front ported speakers They they because I've never had a big room. So I've always been kind of having to manage bass pretty carefully and front ported speakers for me or sealed speakers even better where there's no port yeah i find them preferable generally speaking
1: and then we should also say that if small speakers are preferred because they're cosmetically less intrusive Mm -hmm. and they can go into places more easily than big speakers that if one wants more bass and one knows how to do it properly, it's pretty easy to bolt on the bass with an active subwoofer. But that's sort of like an upgrade path that makes a lot of sense and can arrive at performance that is superior to trying to get the equivalent kind of bandwidth from a passive tower speaker that might be a three or four-way that Mm -hmm. goes equivalently deep and plays equivalently loud, but most likely then will have some room integration issues because mm-hmm. you can't adjust the bass. There's no volume control on the passive speaker for the bass driver.
0: Right, right.
1: Nor can you adjust the crossover, et cetera, et cetera. So if one, if one builds a, a system and the budget doesn't allow for the subwoofer right away, that's a very easy upgrade pass to think of half a year or a year down the road.
0: So w- if we bring it back to my $1,000 hi-fi system, the Dali, the Rotel, and the Topping, if I were to upgrade the system now, I wouldn't. I would not buy a new DAC. Definitely not. I would not buy a new amp. No way. Or new speakers. I'd. I'd get a Dali sub, and I'd come out of the pre-outs on the Rotel into that sub, and I'd cross it over in aug- augmentation mode, and that would have a an enormous effect on what I hear. It would make a profound improvement, and that would be at my my number one by a mile. I guess option for for a. For the best upgrade at this particular point.
1: So now I think we come to maybe creating um, sort of a priority list. If Mm -hmm. we said that the loudspeaker is the most important consideration because it integrates in the room and it's very sensitive to where we place it, then what's the next important, the next most important component in the system to consider?
0: See, this is a contentious subject, isn't it? Because you'll get source firsters talking about the quality of the source. So your streaming source, your DAC and things like that. But I don't agree with that. I think the the choice of amplifier and how well that amplifier interfaces with the loudspeaker is the next thing that needs to be considered. Because to say, you know, to talk about source first is to sort of ignore the fact that for example, in the case of these Dali loudspeakers, I wouldn't use a 3-watt single-ended triode amplifier. It's just not going to work for me. I need power output, I need some drive behind them to control the driver, because the, the the internal cabinet volume is not large. So I need something that's going to control that driver nicely, it's going to give me a little bit of bass, whereas I think a single-ended triode wouldn't give me very much at all. It would be quite weak in the low end, because it just doesn't have the oomph, doesn't have the power, and therefore the current. So. I think this is, you know, I mean you see on loudspeaker instruction manuals again you see recommended power rating for your amplifier. In this particular case I think it's 25 to 100 watts per channel. And the Rotel gives me 50. But obviously the power output as we've discussed in a previous episode is not the only thing to consider but it's it's up there in 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 our decision tree, right? We need to have enough I guess juice on tap on paper. So, yeah, for me it's absolutely the, the amplifier without a doubt. I don't know what you think on this but
1: and absolutely the same. And I would even go further. The the source-first people, they have a very valid argument, but where it completely falls apart is on finances.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a lot easier and cheaper to make a low-noise, high-resolution DAC
2: mm-hmm.
1: than it is to make a low-noise, high-power amplifier than it is to make a full-bandwidth loudspeaker. Mm-hmm. So for example, a uh, $100 topping or in the sort of midfield of the high end, uh, a $1,295 MyTech Liberty 2, mm-hmm. which I just reviewed and you just had a review of, mm-hmm. that is a very, very good DAC, which in order to improve will cost you a lot of money. And then the improvement itself is completely buried by your speaker room interaction. I yep. like to say that past our DAC, resolution-wise, it's all downhill from there. Yep. It only gets worse. <laughs> That's what and now, when, when, you, when you see it that clearly, does it then not make sense to, for your source, select the highest resolution and lowest voicing that you can muster? Because mm-hmm. downhill from there, you'll have voicing and you have resolution losses incurred, especially by your loudspeaker. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a loudspeaker, we have, we have fade shift, we have box talk, we have driver inertia, we have crossover issues, we have dispersion issues. All of those things combined add up to voicing, like is the sound darker or is mm. it heavier, is it brighter, is it lighter, what does it do? Those changes are much, much bigger than anything that we can do in DAX. Mm. So then, in my mind, it makes the most sense to get a really high-resolution, low-noise, linear DAC. And that does not have to cost a lot of money.
0: It doesn't. I I would qualify that by saying that, you know, I guess more costly DACs, like the Liberty 2, right? Um, I would put money that the Liberty 2 DAC would sound better than my topping. Mm -hmm. But it's not going to be... That delta is not going to be as large as, say, the differences between the the same financial delta spent on amplifiers. Not in my experience, but high-end and, DAC, high-end DACs do make a difference. They do, they do, but it's but it's. I think you do that once you've got your speakers and your amplifier totally sorted and your room.
1: Exactly, because otherwise your speaker room interface will be the bottleneck of on resolution, yeah. and whatever you do upstream that would have a chance to sort of telegraph in a real tweaked system can't telegraph because your room speaker interaction isn't isn't resolved enough to let that fine information pass. So that has to be solved first.
0: It does. Yeah. I mean, this is what I always say to the source first argument is you need sort of higher resolution speakers and amps in place in the first place to realize the benefit of your fantastically wonderful High-end source, and, and I mean, there's, there's no point putting a ten grand DAC in the front of this Rotel amp and these Dali speakers. I mean, it doesn't even make financial sense, let alone audible sense. It's just nonsense. Right. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a, you know, in the, in the source first camp. I think that just comes from, I guess, the attractiveness of simplistic thinking. People are drawn to simplistic thinking because hi-fi is super complicated, and there are many variables. All it's like spinning plates. And so, if you only have to spin one plate, it's it's just easy, right? It's, it's manageable. And then you just talk about how you're spinning one plate all the time on the internet, and that's you. But it's it's far more complicated than that, even from an experiential point of view. Let alone if you get into sort of the theoretical, um, m- mechanics of it all.
1: Well, it's that whole "how to kill a vampire" thing, right? You're looking for the silver bullet, right? And there isn't yes. one. <laughs> is one. There isn't one. There is not one. Everything <laughs> matters. Yeah. But there is a sequence you know i like to talk about you know layers that if you have a a first layer problem if you start working on the fourth layer which is much finer it won't matter because the first layer is going to cover it up the first layer is the really important coarse foundational layer that you have to sort first and once that's sorted suddenly the finer stuff becomes you know comes through now you can deal with that so first things first the first things first is sort out the room speaker interaction. Mm-hmm. The second thing, which obviously without doing that, you won't even get any sound, you need to figure out what amplifier you need because the amplifier will literally drive or control the loudspeaker. Yep. And now the third step that you need, because you still don't make any sound with just an amplifier and a pair of speakers, you need a source.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But in the big scheme of things, to get a decent source is easier to do nowadays and really cost-effective compared to the loudspeaker and the amplifier. Mm-hmm. But even there, like you found out, what you can buy today for two hundred and fifty or two hundred dollars in a pair of loudspeakers is actually shocking.
0: It it, it really is. I mean, because I've only, I've looked at three different pairs in the last couple of years, and I've I've really enjoyed all of them. I mean, I don't have them here now because I gave them back to my patrons once I would bought them because I can't and also I also can't store them here. I don't have the, the space, but. I've with with the Wharf Dell. I think it was a twelve point one diamond. The Mission LX ooh, two or one. I've forgotten now. And then these Dalis. And I think I think I like the Dalis just from memory of how much I enjoyed listening to those two hundred euro speakers. I think the Dalie would be my pick. They're just a bit more forgiving and a bit sort of easy easy breezy. Um, I, I am stunned that they can pull this kind of sound for so little money, which is what allows me to buy. A more costly amp, which I think I do need in this particular case, because mm-hmm. I'm I'm not a, I'm really not a fan of these sort of cheap Class D amps that you can get on Amazon at all.
1: Yeah, and me I, neither.
0: They lack they lack body, as I said earlier on, and I have to be careful that I'm not people don't misunderstand that as me hating on Class D because at the high end, I think Class D is great, but I just don't think it can be very well implemented for 200 or 300. And I think you're much better buying a class AB amp for that money from a Denon or Marantz or NAD or the, the, the kind of amps you see in your typical hi-fi store, Cambridge audio, right? Because mm-hmm. when I was starting out, I used to go to my hi-fi store and I'd see NAD, Cambridge, maybe a Creek. I think Creek was a thing back then. Yeah. Um, I've always bought Cambridge and Rotel. Because I guess that was what, what, what I was exposed to. And most importantly, what I could listen to in the store. Right. Because for me, that's a very important part of this sort of whole experience. I mean, now I can buy blind and my whole video is about buying blind. But I wouldn't recommend everybody does that. And I would recommend that you would only buy the stuff you can audition. So if this, the, the the kind of amplifier that you've kind of got your eye on, if that's not in the, the store where you audition gear, don't buy it. Buy something you can listen to first and do an A-B. That would be my advice but now i think i'd like to backtrack a little bit and that Mm. is um how
1: do we know what we like if we haven't sampled a lot if you don't know what's available Mm. that can't be part of your of your menu of things under consideration so i think before one even sets out to to buy a hi-fi one needs to do some reconnaissance Mm -hmm. and i think one of the best ways used to be and now will be again is to attend a trade show like munich because they have consumer days they do but yes there is a there is a limit because the manufacturers that spend a lot of time and money to be there it's not their job to entertain us their job is primarily to sell they want to get new distributors, they want to get new dealers. And Mm -hmm. yes, they also want to present themselves to the end user, but entertaining us as the end user is not their primary objective. However, having this many manufacturers and brands and systems set up under one roof Mm -hmm. that one can listen to over a two-day period as a consumer is a really, really great educational tool to just find out about the different flavors, from Chinese food to Thai food to Italian food to little, you know, two-way monitors to big Martin Logan panels to sub-satellite systems to wireless speakers to four-way magicos, It's all there, and they all have very, very different sonic flavors. So before we even figure out what it is that we want, I think we should get uh, exposed to what's possible, and then narrow down the kind of sound or sound qualities that we find are important to us. Like, are we a sound staging person? Or do we really value tone and timbre and textures? Or are we most blown away by like an avant-garde acoustic display with horn speakers? Mm. And that's what we must have. Now, once we have sort of figured out what's most important to us, then we have to see what we can afford and what we can actually physically get, accommodate and how we can replicate some of those qualities that we are chasing. But if, for example, somebody comes to me and says, what should I buy? If that person hasn't had any prior experience at all, I wouldn't even know where to start. However, yeah. if such a person comes and says, I've heard the avant-garde. This is what I liked about them. This is what I hated. Mm. And then he keeps going. If I just get a couple of those nuggets of data, I suddenly have a much, much clearer idea of what that particular person is pursuing. And then I can be useful with some recommendations as I know exactly the kind of flavor that you're after. And for the budget that you're telling me that you have, these are some of the things that I would consider. You know, in the absence of a trade show, it's also, I don't think, too much to ask to sort of make a weekend out of going to a major city. That has three or four high-profile Hi-Fi dealers, and visit them for the same purpose. And here, I think it—I it, should really point out that if one goes to a Hi-Fi dealer purely for the sake of education, with no intention of spending any money, then it's only fair to pay that Hi-Fi dealer a certain fixed amount to use their facility for three or four hours. I agree. So if I was, for example, if I was to do this now, if I didn't have the back one I have now, I would have to go to Dublin because I live in Ireland. I would have Mm. to go to Dublin or Belfast because those are the biggest cities and those are the ones most likely to have three or four dealers. And I wouldn't do it on the weekend because that's when the dealer is going to have the most walk in traffic. I would do it on one of their dead days. Mm. Might be a Wednesday, let's say, or a Thursday. And I would call them up front and say, I'd like to come in for three hours and, you know, lock the doors, just give me that one room and one sales guy that is going to pull in things in and out. And how much are you going to charge me for that? 50 an hour, 150 for the three hours, whatever it happens to be. I would consider that money really, really well spent. Uh, that's, that's some, it Educates yes. me yes. now about yes. the differences in sound. And then I can be more specific about putting a system together. But I think a lot of people overlook that part when they start shopping, why are they attracted to this Rotel amplifier or why are they attracted to this Bowers & Wilkins loudspeaker? Because they have read reviews or they like the looks of it? But what more do they know? How do they know they're going to like this BMW more than the paradigm Hmm. if they haven't also heard the paradigm? So I think this, um, Getting to know the lay of the land a little bit is really, really important before one does anything, before one spends any money whatsoever. I was lucky enough in that my hi fi career started at, at, at a dealership. I mm. was a sales guy. And I had all these different components come in and out, and customers wanting to hear this combined with that. That's how I learned. I know that not everybody has that, not everybody works at a hi fi dealer, but it's certainly possible to visit them and it's certainly possible to go to a show, or if one has audiophile friends. To listen to their systems and come up sort of with a a list of
0: hot buttons that are important so i would agree with you that at a hi-fi show you can get a sense of what loudspeakers can do so if you're talking about sort of like trying to find your flavor yeah yes for loudspeakers it shows well maybe i I mean i'm being generous when i say yes but when it comes to amplifiers forget it not a chance
1: i didn't mean that at all no i meant more to learn not to like get specific about a component, but mm. about the different flavors of sound. Like so you're phone, talking about the, the sound
0: of the system, right? The, the holistic- Yeah, like a big horn
1: system will sound right. different than a than single-driver, cube audio nanofar driven by a three-watt triode amplifier. It will mm. sound completely different. Sure. And even though you're not assured that that single-ended driver speaker will sound the same in your room that it did at the show, but it's a little bit like sampling, you know, Chinese food and Thai food and italian food and getting a sense for what are sort of the core flavors when you go to one of those restaurants which one do you like and for what reason and now you can be more specific about trying to replicate that with a high fire
0: right so you're not drilling down to the noodle level or oh, the no, uh, no not at all. okay no. So, right okay no. gotcha, gotcha more like the national cuisine flavor right you know? okay yes I, I definitely agree with that but yeah and i think i mean i do feel sorry for dealers because I guess in the high i mean i'm I'm probably guilty of this you know talking about hi-fi shows more than i do about dealers but dealers is where you really go to learn and i don't think anybody i don't think people really understand that paying for somebody's time like that like you've just described is an option and I, i actually think a lot of people wouldn't want to they're like i'm not paying for somebody's time which is really kind of absurd way to think of it i know some dealers do charge for extended auditions. I think it's money well spent. But if you're if you're shopping for a thousand dollar hi-fi system, then spending I don't know many more than two hundred on the, the dealer's time, uh, that's a tricky proposition. But obviously, if you're buying something, then yeah, sure. But I think at the the higher end, if you're if you've got ten grand to to sort of blow, then yeah, spending even a, even five hundred bucks to travel to a different city, make a weekend of it, you know, stay there, go to different dealers that's money well spent. And I always used to advocate this in Australia because very often if you lived in Sydney, a pair of whatever was only available in Melbourne and vice versa, you had to fly, you know, Mm -hmm. like an hour and a half South or North. So yeah, I I guess it kind of comes back to this. Yeah. See, I, I look at my own sort of customer journey when I'm buying say a laptop or a phone, right now Mm -hmm. I can get pretty much, I can narrow it down pretty closely. Just by watching YouTube videos, but I couldn't do that with Hi-Fi because there's this kind of unknown component, right? The sound—you you you have to experience it for yourself. There is no shortcut. Whereas somebody, you know, doing a phone review, they can show certain features. They can do side by, you know, show two phones side by side, and show maybe the different brightness of the screens or the resolution of those screens. So all of you know they—they are very—they fit well to the visual medium that is YouTube or websites or whatever, but sound is just this sort of unknowable thing that you only really know it when you hear it. And it's, I guess guess it's like food as well, isn't it? Like food reviews. I mean, you can watch as much Jamie Oliver as you like, but you've got no idea what that food really tastes like until you sample it yourself. So you're right. It does take a lot of effort on the behalf of the consumer to kind of really dig into sound or flavor, you know, but not so much with laptops and, and, and smartphones. And maybe that's where people come unstuck because they, they're used to doing that. They're used to kind of making up their mind at home from the comfort of their couch and think, well, why can't I do that with sound? Well, you can't. <laughs> well, you could. But that's more when we shop for hi fi on an appliance
1: level. You know, when all that we really want is we turn the bloody thing on and there's mm. sound trickling out. And as we turn it to the right, it gets louder. Now, and some people, they don't really want anything more than that. But there, I don't think the kind of people that read reviews, they're not what I would call, you know, involved hobbyists. They're just consumers. And to them, a hi-fi is really no more or less important than a washing machine. It does a particular job. It's very utilitarian.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Price is it's a big consideration. I mean, I look around my neighborhood here. I live out in the country, and most of my neighbors are farmers, and then they also work in, in uh, construction. Mm pouring concrete or as roofers or as electricians. I've been to some of their homes. They have, as you would expect, a really big television on the wall, Mm -hmm. just like you would have in a sports bar. And if they get really (laughs) fancy, they have a little sound bar below the television. Mm -hmm. And if not, they don't. And that's all the sound that they have in that house. It's coming out of the television. And the television is wired to high-speed internet, and that's how they get videos and music. And they don't expect or want anymore. Sure. And that's completely fine. But in my mind, that's sort of more doing, doing hi-fi or playback on an appliance level. And that, I think, now you can shop on the internet. You can shop by reviews and you can shop on price. But the moment sound becomes more important, like it becomes an experience that you pursue. And this experience is supposed to trigger you. Mm. You know, have you see things or have you feel things or sort of go on a day trip or like a daydream or go into your zone and chill out. Then you first have to know what triggers you. And then you have to figure out how to replicate that trigger that you experienced where you had your first sort of audiophile aha experience, which could have been at a friend's or it could have been at a show or at a dealership. And you said, that's what I want.
0: My courier is here. Sorry, I told you we get go One sec.
1: Sorry about that. No, no. It just occurred to me that nearly one of the smartest solutions for putting a hi-fi system together we haven't mentioned yet. Any idea what that might be? Uh,
0: <laughs> active, <laughs> speakers?
1: <laughs> active speakers? Active right? speakers. Actually,
0: before before we get to active speakers, can I say something about soundbars and appliance-level gear? Oh. Because the reason I bought this $1,000 hi-fi system was I wanted to know how big the delta between a $1,000 hi-fi system and a $1,000 soundbar. So I bought a Sonos Arc soundbar, which is a thousand euros, right? This is one of the better soundbars in the world. It's a Sonos, so it does streaming and that kind of thing
1: and a thousand for a soundbar that's sort of high end for that category it's a
0: high-end soundbar and i thought no don't skimp out and get the beam john because if you do that people will go well you only got the beam you should have got the arc so i I went for the arc you know and it it one of the draw cards of the arc is it does dolby atmos or virtualizes dolby atmos from a tv which is kind of cute and it it does give you sort of a better sort of spatial surround. Well, not surround, but it spreads instruments out in different directions because it's got side firing drivers, upward firing drivers, front firing drivers, and sort of front diagonal as well. So it, it's quite good in sort of pulling apart the strands of music in Dolby. Uh, well, I guess you'd call it yeah Dolby Atmos, right? So it's but uh, spatial is what Apple Music call it, but. I was shocked, like truly shocked at how poor this thing sounds with just stereo music. I mean it's it's not much worse than the Dolby Atmos, but in its in in its kind of entirety, this soundbar for a thousand euros, sound wise, if you're into music and you want to play a lot of music, I, I was yeah, I was really surprised at how weak it is. And I li- I've lived with it for what, three weeks? I just wanted to see how different a soundbar was to the same money spent on a hi-fi system and the difference was much much larger than i expected so i would say to people if you're contemplating a soundbar even a Sonos arc go and sit in front of you know some fairly basic electronics and speakers at your hi- local hi-fi store and listen to that first because it'll sound wider taller Deeper, it will step forward into the room. This is one of the big failings of the arc in my book, is it's like you are sat in your seat and the music is way over there. It doesn't step to the wall, right? Yeah, it doesn't step the sound into the room. So, I mean, I I kind of expected it to be not as good as a hi fi system, but I didn't expect it to be that far behind. Mm -hmm. I was really really surprised by this, and I thought it was an interesting exercise because you see a lot of reviews of soundbars on YouTube, loads of them. But I don't think anybody's ever put them in the context of, you know, a $1,000 hi-fi system and how, well, from in my opinion, how better you could spend your money, especially right. if you're a music fan. If you just watch TV, the soundbar's fine. But then again, I would still get the, the hi-fi system, even though it's a bit more of a pain in the ass to put together. And it's more physically intrusive, right? That's the downside. You need speakers, mm-hmm. stands, but yeah, soundbars. Yeah, I'm not looking at those again for a while, that's for sure. Yeah. Well,
1: let's talk active speakers. And also, because you have experience with it, Mm. um, room treatment versus DSP-based slash, quote-unquote, room correction. Yep. In terms Mm -hmm. of how important are they in the big scheme of things, like more important than the DAC, more important than the preamp, because when it comes to DSP and um, room correction or implementing, integrating bass into a room, we can get some of that built into active speakers. Yes. Which then is another argument in their favor.
0: Right, so I have a pair of active floor standers here at the moment, and they have built into them some bass attenuation smarts inside the app. So you can, you can have more bass, you can have less bass, you can have standard bass. Which for me in this room is invaluable because in the standard mode for i guess bass heavy music i've got too much bass for you know for sort of more traditional sort of rock and roll it's about it's about right but i want less bass i want to click that less setting when i'm listening to say techno or electronic or dub or whatever so having even having that flexibility for album by album is really useful and you yes you can have tone controls built into your amplifier, which kind of do the same thing, but not with without the sort of phase errors that passive solutions bring to the table, which they can sort out in the digital domain. So I'm a big fan of them from that respect. and I, I mean, a lot of active loudspeakers now come with sort of wall proximity settings or in the case of KEF. With the stand mounts, you know, are they near the edge of your table or are they further back? Like all these things to consider. So they're, they're they're considering desk reflection there as well. So there is there is how
1: more. about the, the art
0: that you reviewed, the A five hundred. Well, they have uh, they have some pretty
1: sophisticated sort of room DSP compensation built in, right, or profiles.
0: Uh, I don't know. Well, the pro, yeah, they do have different profiles for the. Uh, that's more the tonal balance of the speaker. Okay. But they do have a, a room correct. This is the A500 we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. So they do have room correction for iPhone users only. So basically, it's a bit like Sonos TruePlay, where you wave your phone around in front of the speaker and it sort of maps the room out in a basic way and then corrects the output of the speaker to optimize it for that room. And now I'd say on, on the Sonos devices, it's a bit hit and miss with TruePlay. The Booker, I thought it was it was good. I wasn't wowed by it. It's not as, I don't think it's as, um, effective, as effective as say Dirac or Lingdorf's room. Perfect. It's nowhere mm-hmm. near as powerful, but it gives you the sort of basic sense of what it, what's possible. And this is one thing I do like about Sonos and their true play is that true play tells mom and dad consumers that the room, the listing environment matters to what they hear because I never had that education. In fact, it took me some fairly hard lessons when starting out with proper full hi-fi systems to understand, oh, yeah, it's my room. That's the problem here, not the speakers. You know, uh, yeah. So if
1: I was a budding audiophile and I asked your opinion on, should I get a pair of passive speakers and then a really clever future-fi type integrated, like a Lingdorf, that has all of those really snazzy, Room correction DSP built in, mm. or should I go for an active speaker like a Genelec or a Buchard? Which uh, one would you recommend more, and oh why? God.
0: <laughs> oh man, that's—I mean, see that I get asked this question quite quite a lot with, with respect to KEF, and so the KEF LS50 Wireless Two versus—you know—should I get those or the LS50 Meta with an external amp? I think, generally speaking, the active solution will will come in cheaper. Yeah, you know, generally speaking, once when once everything else is sorted, there's less physical intrusion, there's less complexity. But I think, well, specifically the Lingdorf and the Dirac, you get more power and control there, especially with the Lingdorf, because being able to adjust the sort of delay of the mains to better suit the output of a subwoofer. So subwoofer integration on the Lingdorf is just wow for me every time. And wow because it's just so damn easy. Like I'm I'm not an acoustics expert, but I know that okay, if I just try this number and have a listen, then try this number, and then when it all locks into place, I'm you know, I'm kind of oh, that's my happy place with this particular setup.
1: So what are we talking money-wise for this Lingdorf that you're referencing? It's an integrated amplifier, isn't it?
0: It is, it's the TDAI eleven twenty, I think. It's about Mm -hmm. two grand, twenty-two hundred, something like that. Um Okay, so if yeah. we if we did that as
1: a budget and we allocated another let's say a thousand on a pair of passive Figures. loudspeakers, speakers, yeah. well, what, what would you get from what has come through your, your dicks of late in that range?
0: Oh boy. Um Do you know what I would get? And this is from Left Field, I would get the Sonos Faber Lumina, is it one or two that I have? Little uh-huh. Sonos Faber bright size speaker. I love that speaker so much because the top end is so insightful. Well, rather the lower treble, upper mids, but that's unique to sort of the certain sort of rock music that I listen to. It has nothing to do with techno, but I just, I love that speaker. So that actually, you know, actually, no, this is fair. So, because I did set this up last week, those speakers with the Lingdorf with the Kef KC62 sub is probably one of my favorite little trios. So more so than the LS50 Meta with that particular setup. Mainly, yeah, mainly so because the, the
1: Kev sub would add another what is it? Twenty five hundred?
0: No, it's fourteen hundred euros, something like that.
1: Fourteen hundred. So now we're still looking, we're still coming in below five. Yes. Two thousand yes. for the Lingdorf, a thousand for the Sonos Faber, and fourteen hundred for the Kev. hmm That's forty four. That leaves us a little money for some cable.
0: And that's roughly the same price as the Booker A five hundred. And okay. I would say definitely go with the the separates go with the Sonus Faber, the Kef Sub, and the Lingdorf. Just because you just get more control, you'll actually get deeper bass, even though the A500 are very good. The only thing that I miss from the book art system, and I mentioned it in the last podcast, is their Fletcher Munson correction at low volumes, which I think is amazing. You turn them down, and then the bass comes up at the, you know, the bottom, and the treble comes up a little bit as well. I, 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 that should be standard. <laughs> I did ask um, a Kef about this, whether they would do this. I mean... They were kind of cagey about it but it's it's something that you can do with dsp that you just can't do any other way really so um
1: i'm really glad you just brought up this fletcher munson thing just because it leads to what i think is the most important quality a hi-fi has to have in mm. my mind and that is be satisfying to listen to at low volumes
0: it's hard i think that's the hardest thing to find but you're right it is I agree I think with you. it's most
1: yeah. important, and unfortunately, there's nothing really predictive about looking at specs and trying to correlate the specs to that quality. I just okay. remember that when I was in hi-fi and in, in a shop mm. as a salesman, and people would come in and ask for a demonstration, they nearly invariably would play or ask me to play some really bombastic stuff mm. at really loud levels. And that is sort of like an 18-year-old kid going to a car dealership and taking a car for a demo, if you can, Mm. and then driving it as fast as you can, or going to the woods and driving it across like a pothole-ridden road just to see what the car will do. Mm. He will do things that he would never do with that car once he actually owned it and had paid for it, Mm -hmm. just as the people that I did that demo for would never play that system as loud as they did in the shop. So if that's the kind of demo that you do, it doesn't tell you anything about your actual application parameters. Like, Mm -hmm. demo the system with the kind of music at the kind of volumes that you will actually play at home. And and I think for most people, especially people that live in apartments, so they have neighbors, Mm. even below and above, it's really vital that the system will be satisfying at low volumes, so they can actually use it more than just a half an hour on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that that I think might be semi-predictive on when you look at speakers, and will this be a speaker that is good on that score or not, is speakers of higher rated sensitivity? Mm-hmm. tend to be better, which is not to say that one couldn't get a less efficient speaker that sort of does really well at that, but I think as a sort of rough estimate that I would much rather go after a speaker that is 93 dB rather than one that's 85 if that particular quality was important to me. And again, not to say that, for example, your 85 dB Wilson... Tune-tot. Are they called the Tune Tots, or yep. what are they called? Tune yep. Tots, yeah. 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 they couldn't really sound good at low volumes. I would be surprised, however, if you didn't confirm for me that the Zeus, at a claimed 100 dB or 99 dB sensitivity, are not more satisfying at low volumes, or like a clip that might be yep. yeah. you know, 97 or 96, whatever.
0: But that's also high efficiency with a large driver. So you get exactly. you get you get the low end, and I know we have covered this at length in other podcasts. Is that really if you've got a stand mount, if you want it to perform well at low volumes, then you need to add a sub. There's yeah. no there's no getting around it because you can't you can't force the, the speaker even with DSP to do more than it's really capable of. So some stand mounts will you know go a bit lower. Maybe they'll get into. I think there was some Mark and Daniel. Do you remember Mark and Daniel? I know you've reviewed some of those years ago. Mark oh, and Daniel- some of
1: them actually would nearly hit 30. Right. I mean, preposterous when you look at the size of the speaker. But they were power hogs. I mean, they really like, yeah. you know, a 100 watt or more amplifier. That's the thing. And they also were made out of synthetic marble. So right, their cabinets were yeah. basically like stone. Yes. Because they were the heavier. pressure that built up in them was just insane.
0: Yeah, but I remember, but that's kind of the exception, really. Most stand mounts, you know, bottom out, 45 hertz, 40 40 hertz, if you're really lucky. Um, Oh, God, I'm generalizing here. I'm going to get kind of (laughs) shot for saying that. But, yeah, so, yeah, the the low listing satisfaction comes from either large drivers and high sensitivity speakers or stand mounts with subs. And so my little $1,000 system here, its big weakness is it's not great at low listing levels. Because yeah. there is no, there's, no, there's no low end. So as you say, it tends to white out when you take it down low. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't, interestingly, and this I will loop back to the soundbar thing, that doesn't trouble me as much if I'm watching Netflix or a documentary or something like that because the vocal presence is still there. So even though they don't go very low, so these speakers don't go as low as the Sonos Arc, vocally they're just as good and at low levels. In fact, I'd say the vocals are a bit richer because the sonos is a bit rigid and metallic and a bit artificial sounding. Whereas these sound nice and easy and, yeah, just easy listening speaker at low levels. But music, I have to, yeah, I do have to choose them a little bit to get them to be satisfying, yeah, on everyday le- listening levels. So I, I would be looking, I mean, if my budget will reach, I probably will, or uh, maybe I'll ask Dali to send me the sub for these because I think that would be. Incredible. And here's the other interesting thing is, and I'm, I'm going to guess here because I haven't done it yet, but I think adding a sub to these. So basically Dali 200 euro stand mounts plus a 500 euro sub. I think it is 500 euros. I would rather listen to that than just a single pair of LS50 meta. Mm-hmm. Because even though the meta are more resolving, they do the whiteout at low volumes. So yeah, it's just not the same. I, I guess yeah, <laughs> everything I say comes back to subwoofers these days.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I think that's in a way important because it is not really often talked about in in our sort of it's not two channels sphere. Mm. and once you have experienced it, you realize just how how primary it really is and how many sort of satisfaction issues and uh, you know it solves and that you can achieve. Satisfying results with less money.
0: That's and the big thing. With, yeah.
1: Yeah. with a physically more compact package that is easier to accommodate in, like, normal listening rooms that have to double as family room, that have to triple as you know, video room. Kids might be playing.
0: See this. So, well, if hang you, on. If you, I have one more thing to add if you don't mind. Ahead. So, you know, even with those Dali stand mounts, and let's say we got the sub as well. I would still go with a a small integrator that did room compensation for the sub-integration that, the, that those amplifiers tend to bring to the table as well. So either the Lingdorf or the NAD. So again, we're back to a situation where we were spending far more on our amp than we're spending on our speakers and sub even combined. So I just, again, every, so every way I kind of look at things these days, it seems that spending more... On your amp than your speakers is becoming more of a, a thing certainly in my experience anyway
1: but now we have to add that we're not just talking about an amp but we're basically talking about an amp with brains because yes. there's esp in there yeah and that's what makes the difference and interestingly enough as on a on a side note since you organized this review of the mark levinson wireless headphones mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for me and then you to talk about i had to do just a little bit of research on mark levinson the company and i realized i hadn't paid attention to this that mark levinson the man is now operating a company uh out of switzerland and when you look at what he actually does he does class d amplifiers with some very very sophisticated DSP that he hired some engineers to do for him that's apparently proprietary to him
0: oh i didn't
1: know that somebody that came from like the beginnings of american high-end audio, mm. you know, super purist, sort of, he's a contemporary with uh, D'Agostino of Krell, or mm-hmm. the early days of audio research, yep. and now if you look what he does 30 years later, or maybe even more, I think he started Mark Levinson in 72, so that's 50 years, it's yeah. a half a century later, yeah. he's now Class D, super sophisticated DSP.
0: Which is the way that NAD have gone as well. Yeah. So... I th- yeah, I think that the DSP and Class D are the big sort of drivers of what I call Futurify, without a doubt. Yeah.
1: And then it makes sense to allocate more funds to the amplifier or the integrated with brains, plus the stupid passive loudspeaker with no brains, which is just, you know, just has a passive crossover. Because now you make the EQ of that, the IQ of that speaker smarter was the DSP that precedes it in the amplifier, and you get performance that far exceeds what you used to be able to achieve with passive loudspeakers that are much more expensive and that are much bigger. They just lack that brain power to control what that speaker does within the room that modern DSP can do. So if we sort of now sort of rewind, trying to give our listeners sort of like a, a wrap up of what we were talking about, about buying a system, setting it up, and getting the most offer. What are some of the highlights that we should just sort of reiterate again?
0: So I think being well-versed in how speaker placements affects the sound in your room is really important. So, And what I mean by that is if if you're just starting out from nothing, you've never really experimented with speaker placement or you've never really owned a hi-fi system, don't go and spend five grand on a pair of speakers. Just don't do it. Go and buy a, a cheaper pair and then use those as a, a toy to experiment with. I mean, you talked about paying your dealer 150 bucks for his time. Just go and buy a 200-euro pair of speakers and an amp and then play with those for a while to pick up some experiences to, you know, what sounds good in your room in terms of speaker placement, in terms of couch placements, so or where you sit and listening. That's the other big thing that I think always gets, well, not always gets missed, but often gets missed, is your how far your chair is into the room. Is it mm-hmm. against the back wall? Bring it forwards. You know, subwoofers should not be underestimated—not at all. I mean, I know that they've been the sort of preserve of the home theater crowd for many years, but I think this—that sort of thinking—is slowly leeching into the the audiophile world. And I think, yeah, it's it's a fundamental for me. And then obviously you have to decide whether you prefer not prefer whether whether low level satisfaction is important to you or not because you might not care because you may be the kind of guy that just gets up and just cranks it every day and so that low level is not really important to you in fact the other end might be more important That like the the maximum spl of your system is probably a, a yeah a more critical factor so knowing how loud it can go so you know the dudes that came in was well, i assume it was dudes that came into stress test um gear when you were demoing them gear so Jean, i think they were probably just I don't know. People like to stress test things, don't they? I think that's what they th- they think. It's the mark of quality is like, how, how, how far can I push this before it breaks? If it doesn't break, it must be amazing, but it could be <laughs> completely, it could be completely shit at low levels. I mean, who knows? But, but I think also doing work yourself. I mean, I've, I've been crapping on about this for a while as well, but you can't expect to just be given a shopping list by somebody on the internet to go and buy that. And that's what you set up a home. And then you're done. Not You have to do some work. There's no getting around it. Right. It's not like a smartphone or a laptop or a washing machine or, or, or a soundbar. Yeah. just so stay away from soundbars if you can help it. Like I think that would be in nugget. But uh, what else did we cover? Um, oh, actually, there was one thing that I wanted to bring up that we haven't covered yet. And it relates to room treatment. And I saw somebody writes, I think it was on my Patreon, you know, I've got, heavy furniture and a rug. And that's just as good as professional room treatment. I don't really want to burst this bubble too hard, but it's nowhere near that. And uh, yeah, putting a rug down does help, but the absorption coefficient of a rug really only kicks in as you get s- sort of maybe closer to say, Oh, I'm going to guess. No, I, I did know the number. I, I could probably look it up, but it's about, it's above a thousand hertz, maybe two thousand hertz. So your rug is not doing anything for bass, anything for mid range. It's just softening the treble a little bit. And the couch, yeah, it will do a little bit for bass. But my friend Terry Ellis, who runs a YouTube channel called Pursuit Perfect System. This drives him nuts too. Like him saying, or people saying, oh, I've got heavy furniture and a bookshelf and some CD racks, and that's just as good as professional treatment. No, and it can help, but it's not the same. And I think pretending, I think people like to pretend that this lesser thing is just as good as this other, often more expensive thing to make themselves feel better. And I know I've been through that, but yeah, the, the rugs can't work wonders. Sofas can't work wonders. They do help a little bit, but mainly in the uppermost frequencies. If you've got bass problems in your room, you're probably always going to have bass problems in your room. So I'm bringing this full circle now, is when you're choosing your loudspeaker, you might want to choose a sound a stand mount that doesn't trigger the bass problems in your room, and then add a sub. Now, the sub will trigger those bass issues, but you have Flexibility of sub placement, your flexibility of sub gain, so it's volume level and the crossover point, so you can work out how best to fit the base output of the sub to your room, which you cannot do, as you've said to you many times, with a passive floor stander. Obviously, active speakers you have sort of a halfway house, but I think with complexity comes more flexibility and vice versa. So. Did I cover it all? Oh, no, I didn't cover it all, but I (laughs) I gave it my best shot. No, I think that those are the key
1: points that I also would agree with. Mm. That today, if I, you know, after 20 years of doing that, if I was to whittle it all down to like one single system, and also with the idea that, you know, 10 years from now, I could take that system into the next house that we might be renting. And it might be a lot smaller than this. Let's say I'm no longer working. I don't need multiple rooms with multiple stereos for my job. Mm. I would go that way. I would go with, uh, you know, a DSP heavier approach. And I would either go with a smart amplifier, yep. like we were talking about, or with a loudspeaker that integrates all of that inside the speaker. Like the Key3, for example, it's yes. a very smart speaker. Uh And the thing that a lot of people haven't mentioned that reviewed it is that in the key controller, that outboard wired remote control, there's some very sophisticated, very adjustable DSP that allows you to, if you know how to do it, shape the frequency response of the speaker to make it just a little warmer or richer, if that's what you want. It does not have to sort of sound like a pro audio studio control monitor, if that's not what you want. But you have to sort of know what you're doing. Then I only found
0: out about that particular set of set range of settings you're talking about a year after I I made my video about them. I didn't know it was there, but I was trying to get the the tweeter to be to sound a little bit less tizzy, a little bit less insistent. Mm-hmm. So I I I'd spoke to somebody at Key, and they were like, "Oh, you can go into the DSP. It's a fairly deep dive on the control, but you can get there, and then just take." whatever frequency it was maybe it was 14 kilohertz i'm not sure maybe a bit lower take it down a couple of db it was wonderful yeah. so yeah i think smart solutions are probably the best way or the most cost effective and less visually and um physically intrusive way of dealing with room problems they can't see i think smart solutions are really good at dealing with bass Really, they're really very good at dealing with bass problems, not so much the high frequencies. And I think physical room treatments are really good at the uppermost frequencies, so mid-range and above. But they they can be good at dealing with bass, but that means a lot of mass. I mean, we've spoken about this in our bass podcast, but you need a lot of bass traps. Mm-hmm. So I think a combined approach is the probably the Id- ideal way to go about it. But I think one in a 1,000 people will have room treatments, like physical things on the wall right and i think it's much it's much more palatable to get a smart amplifier that can do a lot of the a lot of but not all of the heavy lifting for you
1: now we have mentioned smart amplifiers from lingdorf and nad if we did the same with loudspeakers so dsp based active loudspeakers what are some of the brands that you have tried that you enjoyed that you think are worthwhile for for readers to consider so you've just i, mentioned, haven't, really, yeah. I haven't really tried any at the, at the lower end. But um, I have heard, at the high end, three, for example, from Holland. Equo Audio, Dutch & Dutch, Grim, and the Key, which I think now they just opened a new factory in Germany, so maybe they're actually a German company. But so Equo Audio, Dutch & Dutch, Grim, and Key at the high end, so not inexpensive, but really, really sophisticated, DSP-based active speakers. In Mm. the middle, I think there's something like um, Achelec, that would be the guy that runs Metro Acoustics and mm-hmm. Sonnet.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He has an active loudspeaker. And then, of course, the Genelec from Finland, have a whole range.
0: I have some Genelecs, yeah. Two okay. pairs, actually. Um, but they're, they're... Any other ones that you can
1: fill in from your experience, sort of in the Genelec range, you know, 2000 yes. to 3000, maybe even below that?
0: So I've used obviously used the KEF LS50 Wireless 2, but they don't really have room compensation. Mm -hmm. just sort of a basic eq for various settings a bit like the genelex do because the genelex you have to buy their optional room compensation kit it's another 300 euros or something like that i I did use that once but i get i gotta say that was when i first moved here and i wasn't really well versed in room compensation software so i didn't really know what i was listening for so i was like yeah that sounds different but I, i don't know if i like it or not um i'm trying to think what else have i done I mean, I did the ELAC, the ARB51, the Andrew Jones active mm-hmm. speakers, but they were unique in that they were not DSP-based.
1: Well, it was analog. Yeah, analog right? active,
0: yeah, which is very unusual. But I thought it was, it was kind of a nice-sounding speaker. Um, I'm I'm going to get killed if I miss something, aren't I? And I can't think off the top of my head.
1: Oh, God. Okay, so...
0: Sorry, I'm drawing I'm am blank. It might come back. Now... With your
1: experience with the, the room treatment installation that you have, mm-hmm. do you have a rough notion an estimate for your size room, five by six meters, the cost yeah. of, of doing, of doing uh, the, the basic version and then the sort of the full bore version that you have
0: there, what would one be looking at? So this is expensive. This is 10,000 euros, the, what, what I have.
1: That's pretty much the full-bore version that you would say is effective down to what? 100 hertz?
0: Yeah, about that. I mean, I know that I have measured it, actually. The reverb time of this room now is between 200 and 300 milliseconds above 250 hertz, which is just spot on. Um, It used to be up to about 700, which was zippy and zingy and full of slap echo and things like that. So it wasn't great. I guess if I was only going to do a halfway house on this, and didn't if I wanted to minimize spend, but also minimize intrusion, I would do the ceiling first. Because when we put the ceiling in, because that went in first when we did the installation, it made a huge difference, the sound of the room, even just talking to people in the room. And then every wall that we did made an incremental improvement, but nothing was as profound as the ceiling. So the ceiling bounce. Because I think people tend to think of hi fi systems as just bouncing off walls. But obviously, this is why I mentioned the rug not being an effective or well, not a very effective bit of room treatment to, to mitigate floor bounce. But the, the hardest one, well, and actually, no, the, the, the floor is the hardest one because you can't put anything on the floor other than a rug. That's it. You'll never get rid of floor bounce, not really. But ceiling bounce, you can do a lot about. And the, the panels that I have are very effective, although I've had problems with them falling down not the physical structures, but the foam inserts. Mm-hmm. So Viacoustic are coming back soon to glue them in because they're just Velcroed at the moment. So I can see at the moment, one, two, three, that are kind of bowing and probably will fall down overnight. And this is, it's been bugging me a lot. It's due to the change of weather, I think, I don't know. But we'll get that sorted. But the ceiling is probably the the best or the, yeah, the that's where the smart money would go, I would think. And also it's, it's not the, it's not, I mean, it's visually the least obtrusive. Yes, exactly. Thank you to the words. one out of my mouth. Yeah. Visually. So that's a
1: really smart recommendation that when people think about room treatments, look up. Look yeah, because the they ceiling. think walls,
0: right? And think, no fucking way I'm having that stuff on my walls. And I understand that. I get that. But I had the chance to do it. And you don't get many chances like this in life. So I just thought, oh, I'm going to do it. Um, but yeah, th- I would do the ceiling. And you Can don't, you, in your mind, back out the cost of just the ceiling?
1: Or do you have an idea?
0: Uh, I, I don't, but I, I'm, I'm going to guess it's probably, what, two grand, something like that? Okay. And if, if it is two grand, that's that's brilliant. That's a that's a really good way to spend $2,000, dollars euros on uh, the sound of your hi-fi, if you like.
1: Now, you have watched the installation. That's something that a customer could easily do for themselves if they had a ladder in the drill.
0: Um, yeah and also one of those laser guided alignment systems I don't know what they're called they put a laser on the wall so you can mm-hmm. you can colored lines and you can line things up but mm-hmm. yeah I guess I, the thing is mo- anybody that could build their own loudspeaker could definitely do it i mean but the thing is is i asked for as l- as little glue as possible so i've got this row of this sort of dispersion it's like a a complicated overview of a city. It looks like that. It's the cubes that stick out at different levels, and that those are glued on. But they are the only things that are glued onto my ceiling. The rest are frames that are drill mounted. But you could just as easily, I think, have the the absorbers just glued onto the ceiling as well. And that it's thing. all white. It's all white. Yes. Yeah. Apart, the frames are metal, so you can mm-hmm. see the edge of the frames. I mean. I'll, I'll put a photograph in the show notes for this episode so people can see. Um, but it's, I don't know. I, 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 mean, I think it looks interesting, but I realize it's not everybody's cup of tea, but if, yeah, if you had the ceiling done and then you just had like normal wall art and things like that and bits of, I don't know.
1: Yeah. But you know, for me, that's actually personally the most exciting or important takeaway from this hmm. podcast. Because obviously the things that I talk about, I I have experience with or know about. Mm. But that bit of information, I knew about installations where people put a lot of uh, absorptive material in the ceiling. They had a suspended ceiling that was for base. Mm -hmm. But it didn't occur to me to ever since then think about the ceiling as sort of the number one attack point for room treatment that is visually unobtrusive that I could actually probably do even in a rental. Because you could. It, would, it, it wouldn't leave any marks if I if I did it properly when I take it out after.
0: Yeah, it, I think it's easy to patch up. I mean, I, I, I've i factored in the a full warp, re-wallpapering of this room when I move out, if I when to move out. But here's an interesting thing, I, I and this is something I've noticed. Of every single restaurant I've ever been in that has some kind of acoustic treatment, it is always on the ceiling, always. Mm-hmm. It's never on the walls. Or very maybe th- there is some but I've never noticed it, but they have some fairly creative because the buildup of conversational noise is a really big problem with hardwood floor restaurants. Right. Yeah. So they always put these sort of, well not all of always, but sometimes put these sort of clouds up in all sorts of different funky patterns. I think it's fascinating. So yeah, that's, that's interesting to me.
1: And with your success, of buying that $1,000 system that we talked about, or 1,000 euro system mm-hmm. at the opening of this. I think that's a good point to go out on, that even somebody that has done it for 10 or 12 years like you have, and you have heard some pretty expensive stuff, mm-hmm. that you can actually be satisfied with a 1,000 euro system.
0: Absolutely, I can. Yeah, I think I would be much happier with the sub. But even then, it's going to be a f- 1,500 euro system. It's not going to be expensive. Yeah, I, I, I could be quite happy with this system. No, no problem. And I guess I was, when I was listening to it or listening to music through, it, I was thinking, yeah, like constantly thinking about gear and maybe this is a function of the job rather than the pursuit itself, but constantly thinking about gear and this thing and that thing. And it has over time pulled me away from, I, I guess my fanaticism for music that I have yet to discover. Like the stuff that I know I will I can buy it in all sorts of formats and really enjoy it. But yeah, you know, really digging into like new music and I, I have, the more I get into the sort of audio file space, the less time I have to, yeah, you know, just sit with Rune or whatever and just cl- start clicking through new releases and playing my, I don't know, Spotify weekly playlist and things like that. And that's, it's kind of annoying a little bit. And I look at this thousand dollar hi-fi system and think, yeah, I kind of miss the days when I had something like this years ago and had more time to just, I don't know buy music subscribe well not then it was back then it was uh, buying cds and things like that but now you have more time for music itself rather than just thinking endlessly about which bit of gear or you know the sound of this and the sound of that but that's a, that's a very much a champagne problem
1: yes but i think it's interesting for for listeners maybe to hear you say that and i would agree with it that you know Very often we start out with hi-fi on the appliance level. We just have something that makes sound. It could be a little boombox. And as we get into the hobby and we get quote-unquote more sophisticated, the hi-fi gets more complicated and what we expect from it or what we listen for becomes more complicated. And very often that actually takes us away from enjoying the music because now we are more focused on just sound effects. And it can eventually lead to a simplification again or a downscaling or simplifying. Where in in a way, we get back to a hi-fi as an appliance. It just does its job. And we we are forgetting about improving it or tweaking it or doing anything to it. We're just using it for the purpose that it was designed to do. Like a washing machine, you clean clothes with it. You don't tweak Mm. it. A hi-fi, you turn it on to listen to music. And that's all you do with it. You don't do anything other but listen to music. And I think very often between those two poles, starting out really simple and maybe ending simple, there's this like big journey in between that is interesting and it's teaching us a lot of things, but maybe we lose sight of that that basic purpose, where it's really just an appliance. It's just a machine or a number of machines tied together doing a thing. And now we are again focused on doing the thing.
0: Hmm. I think this is where active speakers or streaming active speakers really allow us to kind of hit both poles. So the, the really good ones allow us ease of use. We can treat them as an appliance, but they also sound bloody amazing. They're not well, like the the appliance, like a soundbar is an appliance. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of engineering gone into them and there is no tweakability. And I think that's a good thing for certain kinds of listeners because some people can't help themselves. You know, I'm probably one of them. Can't help myself thinking, oh, what can I get next? And how can I take this to the next level? And with with active speakers, streaming active speakers, there is no real next level. Not really. You either have to get a whole new system. Right. So, yeah, I guess you, you're right. It is a journey that you kind of go on and you learn a lot about sound. And I definitely, definitely listen to sound quality as or rather I take my enjoyment from sound quality more than I used to in listening to music. So I can appreciate the music, but also the sound of that music as well. And that's, I like that. But if ever I got to the point where I was appreciating the sound more than the music, that would be time to hang up my hat and just go back to something super simple like this, because for me, that's going too far. But a lot of people probably don't agree with that, but that's that you know, that's their own sort of individual journey slash set of preferences. But I don't know, I can never be somebody who's just into sound. It just it feels too academic.
1: I mean I've I, I've re-arrived at simplicity with that that cube speaker from Slovakia that we that we covered in yeah. in the last podcast. I got them off the table now. They're on two stands beside the table. Uh-huh. So six hundred and ninety euros. Uh huh. And I'm running it with an iFi uh, DAC, but I could just as well run it with that MyTAC that I just reviewed, which is 1295. So 1295 plus 690, we're talking about less than 2000. The stands cost me 75 euros. Yeah. There's just a USB cable that comes straight out of my computer, my workstation. That's it. One box, which is the DAC with volume control, a pair of speakers on a stand. The speakers are less than a square, square foot, uh-huh. and it sounds unbelievable. And the only drawback is that I have to actually sit on my work desk to listen to it. Mm. And obviously, I don't always want to sit here. I'm, I'm ready to call it a day when I'm done working. I want to go in, into a different room. Mm-hmm. So I would, if this was my only hi-fi system, I would actually have to sort of divorce it or disassociate it from my work desk and the, the, the monitor in between. Hmm. And I would set this up probably, like I have it now, just in in a, in a small bedroom, maybe at the foot of a bed, or just in 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 near of the the big speaker system I have there right now, and hmm. just sit in the near field. And I could be very happy with it.
0: I think the same can be said for, I mean, you mentioned the Mark Levinson noise canceling headphones earlier on. Same could be said for that kind of category of product because that to me is like the the streaming active loudspeaker equivalent in in the headphone world and there is nothing to tweak there's nothing to change i mean you can change the dsp a little bit i mean according to taste you can some of them you can eq them not all of them though but you're just back to being a music fan when you put those on and that's that's why I, i love this simplicity and i kind of i do miss it a little bit but i i have to acknowledge that this is you know well for you as well this is our job so we're not just we're constantly you know, rolling through new bits of hardware and working out which one comes in next and which one to change so you don't lose track of what that other thing is doing. And yeah, that kind of gets in the way of music appreciation or musical enjoyment, I think. I don't know. I just don't... Am I the music fan that I once was? Well, it's hard to know because it's also... I'm older now. So when you get older, you sort of lose interest in things or music doesn't hit you in the same way as it did when you're like 17. But I still, I'm very much into discovering stuff and also buying stuff. I like physical formats, like CDs and vinyl. So that for me is part of the joy, like shopping for music. I, I love it. Buying, like going to a record store. I love it. Just, right. I dunno, it's just the whole experience because it feels like a life activity and not just, you know, a lone wolf in his little cave here which is what, what I think actually most audiophiles are, which is, I think, a little bit sad. I really do.
1: So it could be a good takeaway for listeners of today's podcast to, to keep it simple and to not be so enamored or seduced by, you know, the complexity of, of, of high-end audio because they can now hear people like you and I having done this journey over mm-hmm. many, many years, sort of rediscovering the enjoyment of just keeping it much simpler.
0: So I would say this, right? Is is generally speaking, better gear is academically better for me, right? But do I enjoy it more than sort of lower quality gear? Mm, I'm not quite so sure. I don't know. Like I, I do. Like if I get, a, like if if I put, say, for example, a Mola Mola Tambaki DAC into a really Highly resolving, and I guess it would be a costly hi-fi system. Yes, I really enjoy that, and I can appreciate it from an academic point of view. But it doesn't make me more of a music fan. It it does. I guess it does enhance the music in some degree. But it, I don't really know what part of my body is being engaged by that. I think it's all cerebral. I don't. I mean, we talked about this. Like, I don't think it's somewhere. I don't think it's emotional. I don't think a more expensive hi-fi system or a better hi-fi system is. Necessarily allowing me a deeper emotional experience. I don't know. I'm not I'm not I'm not convinced by that necessarily.
1: Well, I would also say that as human beings, we are incredibly adaptable. So if you took my best hi-fi, the one that I enjoy the most, if you took it away from me, I would miss it. But how many days or maybe just weeks would it take me to sort of settle Mm. with whatever you left me? and then start using that, and pretty soon forget about the other one and enjoy this new one just as much. Because I'm not comparing it anymore. Yeah. Maybe there's a period where you sort of still, you you have the rush of the one that left, and you haven't sort of embraced the one that you're left with on its own terms. So maybe there's sort of a period of that you have to forget and let go. Mm. But once you have done that, you know, you apply the same, your same listening intelligence, your, your same senses, just mm. as before, they haven't changed. And when you stop comparing and you take the new thing on its own merit, I don't think that your listening pleasure will will sort of diminish at all. Because if I remember my first experiences with hi-fi, once I had moved out, my dad had a hi-fi. Mm. The first ones came from car stereos in some cheap-ass car that I could afford at the time. That Uh was my only way, my only means to listen to music. Mm. And it was radio still. And I remember the radio station coming in and out, you know, bad reception, and it would completely break up, and it would come back in. That was when I sort of met music, and I, I heard new music that I hadn't heard before. And sort of that curiosity and the emotional reaction to it was probably stronger than than now that I'm a sort of a little desensitized because I can do so much of it at any time of
0: the day. But also, you're older though, because those kind of yes. formative years experiences are yes true, very emotional, tur- emotionally turbulent times. So true, you are true. more tuned into, I guess, just stuff that comes on the radio, like what the hell is this? But yeah, I guess it becomes, I guess, better hi-fi geared. I don't know. It does make it more of an definitely more of an academic pleasure, I think. There is there is a little bit more emotion, maybe, but like you say, yeah, if if everyone if you know if somebody was to take everything out of this house and leave me with the DALI and the, the Rotel and the, the little DAC and my TV, I'd still be pretty happy, you know? It's just I, I well, guess it's, it's like wine, isn't it? Like I mean, I can drink ten dollar ten dollar wine quite happily. If I buy a fifty dollar bottle, I appreciate the difference, it's delicious. But if then that becomes my new standard, that's a very expensive way to live. You know, you end up like uh, Leonard Cohen, spent a lot of money on wine. It's how he ended up, well, not how he ended up going bankrupt, but one of the reasons he didn't keep check on his spending. And I think he actually said in an interview, like, you know, when I'm I'm drinking good wine, the whole room's drinking good wine. So that's like several thousand dollars per night. So it's, it's, yeah, just keeping things in check a little bit and just asking yourself, is this enhancing my emotional engagement with music or not? I, th- I, I guess you can only only individuals can answer that. But
1: well, there's also the other thing that um, the, the, if the the system is basic, it's a little bit more like a sketch artist. It doesn't fill out all of the detail. Mm. To fill in that detail is now left to the listener with their active imagination, which is how musicians listen. Because I'm a musician by training, and I have friends mm. that are musicians, and I know that their interest in hi-fi is very limited because they don't need the hi-fi to do all of it for them. Mm. They do at least half with the way that they listen. They fill in a lot of things actively as the listener in their psychology. Mm. And as the system is doing more and more and it's becoming more and more photorealistic, and now we're talking about pixel counts, you know, and how many details can it really sort of map out there, it leaves less and less for the listener to do. Now the whole burden of the experience is being shifted on the equipment. And I call it sort of the doomy mentality. It's like, I'm not doing anything anymore. The system is doing all of it. Whereas when I had that shitty crappy car stereo, I had to do a lot of sort of filling in of the blanks because half the time it wasn't mono, half the time it was crackling reception. And still I heard the whole song and I still got the emotional message of the song. Mm. Now my system is so resolved, it does it all for me. So if I now forget to contribute, then I definitely lost something. Now, if I can recover that part in me that contributes to the experience, I can be perfectly happy with a much simpler system that is not as resolved, is not as detailed, is not as colourful, is not as deep and wide and tall, and I can I can find the same satisfaction.
0: Yeah, I guess you have to sort of find it within yourself, don't you? I mean, it's a it's a maybe it's a philosophical conundrum that we all have to face. It's like, you know, are we happy with what we have? I mean, a lot. I think a lot from what I see on the internet, a lot of people, a lot of audio files out there, are not, and they're annoyed. You know, they're annoyed. They can't have that more expensive thing. But I think it's just, I don't know. I don't know what to say to people like that. They have to work on themselves to get. Well, I would, I would distinguish between between active and passive
1: listening. You know, the mm-hmm. active listening is what the musician does. It's also when you read. You know, when you read a book. Yeah. And you read between the lines, and then you start to see images associated with the words. That's all things that you contribute. Yeah. And sometimes the author may not even have realized this particular thing between the lines that that came up for you. Your mind contributed that. But that's very, very different from speed reading, where you're just trying to get the gist of the thing that was was said. Like you're reading a newspaper article, you don't want to read the whole thing, you just sort of scan it, just to get the basic message. That's very different. Mm. So I think if you can listen actively, So if you contribute something, then the system has to do less. The burden on the system is lower, and the system can be a whole lot simpler. But I think if you get on this audiophile journey and things get more complicated and you spend more money on the equipment and the equipment actually does more and it does more and it does it better in measurable Mm. ways, I think the tendency becomes that we forget that we actually have to contribute or that we used to contribute something. And if that happens, then I think then you can arrive and you can be sort of this disenchanted audiophile whose system now is thousands of times more expensive and better than what he used to have when he was going to college. Hmm. But the satisfaction derived thereof is, is marginal.
0: Yeah, but I think that especially when it comes to resolution. So for me, I don't get a kick out of more resolution as much as I do, say, a sort of a heavier, weightier sound and you know again come back to the low volume thing a heavier weightier sound at low listening levels
1: mm-hmm. because
0: that for me is is pure joy like but in in here i'm pointing to my heart not my head i think yeah. the the resolution and the kind of hearing you know that far back into the sound stage and that little thing is it it happens in my brain and that's where the pleasure center lies for that but it's not that's not as important for me as sort of just this i guess this idealized sound that i have in my head this heavy weighty almost like a pa you know when you go to a, a live show or a, a festival and you can you can feel it in your stomach the the the, mm-hmm. the, the, the bass notes and i like that but I, obviously you have to sort of map that into the room properly and so having that sorted out as well because you just get that feeling of deep down satisfaction i guess that's what it is it's, it's a deep satisfaction and it's not necessarily or maybe i'm kidding myself i don't know but it doesn't feel like it's coming from up here but it's it's more yeah in here i, I maybe i sound like a complete pretentious tip no no but, but yeah, I well, think
1: that's that's what i was trying to also get at before when i said that before somebody uh, starts building a system they ought to have some kind of a sense about the different flavors or or Gestalt Mm. of of possible presentations till they learn what's important to them. So if you are a wall of sound kind listener and you're somebody that has listened to like live PA systems or has gone to clubs and is really familiar with and sort of addicted to that kind of presentation, then the kind of system that you need to build will be different from somebody who does, who listens to sound much more visual and he needs all the visual imaging cues and Mm. sounds Cues and those little tiny details of the symbol trill way back there behind the bass player. So then you will you will build a different system. You just have to know that this is what's important to you. Mm. And they are very different presentations for sure.
0: Yeah, they are. Yeah.
1: And going to like a, a, a string quartet, unplugged, a live concert is a very different kind of sound than going to an amplified concert which is much bass heavier. And then one that's indoors is gonna sound very different to one that's outdoors in a tent by a lake. And then you go to a club with a PA system where you sit pretty close to the stage. That's again, a different kind of sound. It's just a question of learning what is the kind of sound that we like. I think we have to do some research. We have to spend some time to educate us yep. outdoors what's possible. Yeah. So shows, going to dealers, going to friends that have systems, because very often, I think what happens is that somebody has this aha moment and they now associate musical bliss with that aha moment. Mm. It just happened to be the first time that their cherry got popped. And if it was, let's say, a clip system with big woofers and horn loaded tweeters, and the guy played it real loud and they heard, you know, Dark Side of the Moon and it just blew them away. And now they think that that's the way to arrive at satisfaction, but they never have heard anything different than that. Mm. They might build that system, and then three years later, they have an audiophile friend that built their system around a Martin Logan electrostat, and they hear things on the same recordings that they know that they never heard before. They said, damn, I now have to start all over again? That's because they conflated their first sort of get the cherry popped experience was that that's the sound that they like. It's just that sound the first time was so much better than what they ever heard before. That's what burned themselves into their psyche. Mm. But if they had then said, okay, that was great. Let me have another great experience of a different flavor, and then listen to an electrostatic system, and then listen to a mini monitor with a subwoofer, they might have realized that maybe that first Klipsch-based system really wasn't their ideal sound at all. It was yeah. just so much better than what they heard before, you know.
0: Yeah, I, I sort of liken that to only reading one book. You read like one amazing novel, you go, ah, this is it. This is this is my worldview forever, right? Yeah. And you stick with that until you meet a, I guess, an opposing opinion or you know, a conflicting opinion, and you can't. You, you go to pieces. You're like, oh fuck, this 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 uh, conflicting opinion is really well put together, and I I can't push back against it. So, Oh, maybe I should consider that way of looking at the world. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like traveling as well. Like if you only stay in the country you were born in that's, you know, it's, it's, what's that old saying of like, I think it's something like, what, what can you know of England? If you only England, know? Okay. Right. So if you don't, you know, if you only, if you live in England and you stay in England all your life, then what can you possibly know about elsewhere? And really, what can you know about your own country because you have nothing you haven't really contrasted it with anything? I don't know. I just yeah, yeah. it's 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 the same thing. food, traveling, wine, reading, it, it's all built upon a multitude of experiences and they sort of build over time. And I think over time as you get older, you start to work out what you like. It's like I give another example, whiskey, right? is that I really like the sort of soft vanillary, whiskeys that come out of Japan. Now, I know somebody like Roy Hall at Music Hall, who's a big whiskey aficionado. He he has said this to me. He's like, John, but that's not a whiskey. It's a nice drink, but it's not a whiskey. And he might prefer the kind of the big, stronger, sort of more robust things like Ardbeg. And what's the other one? Oban, like the really kind of robust sort of tiki wood flavored whiskeys, right? So, But you have to try all of them to know yeah, I went for a whole bunch of whiskies about five years ago, so I could hone in on the ones I liked. But that yeah. was much more affordable than <laughs> demoing <laughs> hi-fi, right? I mean, but yeah, you can't do that for too long. Anyway, I think, does that does that bring us to a, a sort of um, an awkward conclusion, Sujan? I think it might.
1: Yeah, and way overdue. I think we started uh, two and a half hours ago.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, we did, yeah. Anyway, Sujan, thank you very much for your time today.
1: My pleasure, John.
0: You have been listening to the Darko Audio Podcast with me, John Darko, and Six Moons' Srajan Iben. This episode was produced by Nick McCorriston and music came from Ben Pitt.